Welcome to Pineland Underground, the official podcast of the U.S. Army John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School. Here we explore critical themes across the realm of Army Special Operations. This is Pineland Underground. All right, welcome back to another episode of Pineland Underground. I'm your host, Major Bobby Tuttle with... Sergeant Major Chuck Ritter. And it's an absolute pleasure to have our guest on today. It's humbling. It's an absolute honor. So we've got family man, warrior, and all-around badass and accomplished Green Beret, Chief Warrant Officer 2, Nick Lavery. Nick, thanks for joining us in Pineland Underground today. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It's good to spend some time with you, boys. All right, Nick. So we try to spend the first couple of minutes of this with something. We've been going back and forth with Bobby gets a chance to say whatever he wants or ask a question. And unfortunately, this is my turn to ask you the question. So what's something lately... You know, you just wrote a book and you're probably pretty well read on some things, but what's something that Nick Lavery has found that's inspirational or something you've been thinking about lately that's a little bit profound or something that you've just kind of been trying to wrap your mind around? Ooh, yeah, you're going deep early, Chuck. Okay. Uh, and this is I'm, this is totally unscripted. I got nothing prepared. I didn't know you were going to ask me that. I like it. I'll start kind of warm and fluffy because it's the truth. Like what inspires me daily more than anything else is my family. And we'll come back to that, I'm sure, a bunch. I got a four-year-old boy and a 10-month-old boy, and they are daily reminders of what my why you know, really is and why I feel the need to push it as hard as I do. To kind of get in something maybe a little more analytical, I just finished a book called Peak by a guy named Anders Ericsson, and uh, it's got a lot of great stuff in there. It's kind of in the same realm as like a Malcolm Gladwell, so kind of a philosophy meets psychology meets statistics kind of realm. And there's a piece on there that talks about what talent is. And actually, I talk about talent versus skill in my book, and it's something I hit on regularly just in life, how two different things, right? Talent is kind of a kind of inherent skill, things that you're born with mm-hmm. and almost genetically gifted. Those are your talents. And then skill comes only through thousands of hours of grinding on a particular craft. Those are two different things, both important. And to be able to leverage both of them enables us to be kind of one of the greats. But what this book kind of talks about is that talent isn't coded into our DNA. It's actually a form of skill. But what the talent really is, is you are born with the ability to learn something very quickly. And he goes down different case studies. And one of the, one of the more obvious ones is Tiger Woods, the golfer, right? You can look at that guy who's arguably one of the greatest golfers of all time and say, man, this guy was a, a golf prodigy. Like he was born to play golf. It was coded into his DNA when he was in the womb. But according to the argument that Erickson makes, it's like, no, that's not the case. He may have been born or more than likely was born with the ability to learn very quickly, but where he, how fast he progressed was the result of his father, more than anybody, hammering in these skill sets into him at a very, very young age. Mm-hmm. And his ability to learn fast is what propelled him to be the great that he is now. So just like an interesting spin on what talent really is, which I like because it does reemphasize the importance of skill and repetition and training just done from a young age and having that ability to absorb quickly that's the talent so i don't know if that's kind of the direction that you wanted me to go in bro but it's the it's kind of where my headspace is at right now that's pretty awesome you actually makes me think of you know we had the same trainer there for a little while jason back in the days at, at thor three and one of the things he used to tell me is that if the pro teams that he would work with before he worked with us would work as hard as we did on skill that they'd be super phenomenal compared to what they were what we had that they didn't 
was our drive and our want to work just incredibly hard at the skill part to really better ourselves. And he said, that's not something that you find in civilian sports a lot of times. I don't know if he ever told you that story, but I always found that interesting that that he thought that we had this drive that, you know, these other super professionals and people that we view as, as really awesome, talented people they just don't possess. Yeah, no, that's good stuff, man. I love it. Hey, but back, like, did Jason ever talk to you about that? Did he ever talk to you about his time working with professional sports teams versus what he saw in us with our drive towards trying to get better at skill? Yeah, um, I don't remember that specifically, but Jason and I had many conversations about his time working with pro athletes versus us and the mindset, uh, in his opinion, being one of, if not the greatest differentiating aspects of what allows us to do what we do with the capacity we do it. Uh, so it's a cool perspective to hear that from someone who's worked with like, the most elite athletes on the planet. So uh, it's pretty special. I really like that. I think that internal drive, that self-motivation uh, or that ability to be trained and trainable is huge. And I kind of see that, you know, I see that a lot at, you know, at companies that look to hire special operations people or former athletes is because that competitive edge that they bring to the table. And one way I kind of, it was encapsulated to me was we seek out those people to be part of our organization because they hate losing more than they love winning. And that ability, that fire still just drives them inside because they want to be the best and compete every day. And that translates to that repetition after repetition to bring that finite skill to bear once once they've honed it over thousands of repetitions. That was a very yeah, no, I say that. couldn't say it better myself. That's perfect. No. <laughs> All right, Nick. So let's talk about you real quick. Let's go and do a little bit longer introduction of, of Nick Lavery. So Nick, machine Lavery joined the Army in 2007. He went to the Special Forces 18 X-ray program and graduated as a Special Forces weapons sergeant. In 2013, Nick deployed on his second combat rotation to Afghanistan. His team fell victim to an insider attack, and he was severely injured in his right leg, resulting in a high above-the-knee amputation. He was offered a medical retirement, but refused. He was intent on recovering and returning to a Special Forces detachment. Nick not only accomplished that goal, but he is the only high amputee to return to a special forces team and then deploy to combat with that detachment. He's also the only above the knee amputee to pass the grueling special forces combat diver course and the special operations combatives course. Nick is currently a chief warrant officer too in the fifth special forces group for combat valor. He's been awarded the silver star, bronze star for valor and three purple hearts. He also recently published a book called objective secure I've known Nick personally for a while, and he embodies the words humility and perseverance. So, Nick, it is an honor to have you here on the podcast today. You said thanks for letting us have you, but, but seriously, man, it's, it's cool to have you here and really looking forward to getting to some of these topics. No, I appreciate it, brother. Thank you. First, let's talk about, like, what team, you know, you started in 3rd Special Forces Group, but now you're in 5th Special Forces Group. Anybody knows the movie Horse Soldiers probably, you know, knows a little bit about 5th Special Forces Group. But what team are you on right now, and, and what's the importance of that? Yeah, so currently I'm on uh, ODA 5335, formerly known as 595, back when we had three-digit team numbers. 595 is best known for the movie 12 Strong, which was the first team to move into Afghanistan following the attack on 9-11. Obviously a ton of history there, and history of that team and, and what they did is all over the team room. 
It's on the walls, memorabilia, photos of these guys, these legends now, right? Surrounds us every day. And it really has placed the bar high for our detachment specifically to not only maintain, but to raise the bar, right? Like our job is to make the guys that were behind us look bad because we want to be constantly pushing it higher and higher and higher. Well, they set an awfully high bar, but we go in every day with the intent of doing that and to show that respect for the lineage in which we come from. So it's certainly very special. Uh, you know, 595 is on the team room door. I see it literally every time I walk in. So it's a, it's a daily reminder as to what has come behind me and what's expected to be uh, in front of me. So, I mean, every SF ODA is on the greatest team there is, and every SF team is trying to push that limit. Uh, I'd like to think that we do have a slight advantage only because of the history behind 595 and the fact that it's staring me in the face and the rest of the boys, you know, every single day. Yes, that, I mean, walking into a team room is one of the coolest experiences. That threshold of you, you go into the team room and it's business with the boys. And I can only imagine with, you know, you guys walking into 595 every day and you being that W2 on the ODA, just bringing that, hey, earn it every day mentality to what to, to the team once you step foot inside that door. Do you? Yeah, it's pretty cool, man. And I'll tell you, it's it, it's it's awesome for me. It's it's powerful for me. And I've been doing this now almost 15 years, right? But we got these young kids that are coming out of the course, part of which you guys have created to a degree in SWIC. And these guys are walking to this team with that magnitude. And it's I often forget what that's like to just walk into any team room on day one, right? It's scary. Like, wow, I've heard all these rumors about what it's like in the team room. Do I bring a case of beer? Do I not? Am I allowed to even have beer in this building? Do I knock on like the door? a lot of concerns. Do I, knock on the door? do I knock on the door? Do I walk in? What do I say? What do I call these? Like these kids are going through that, but now they also are walking into the five nine five team room. Like these guys watched the movie 12 Strong with Chris Helmuth. Like, oh my God, I'm on this team. And it's like, ah, bro, you're on this team. Like, it's time to go to work. So, you know, we got some young kids in the team now that have recently just joined. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty cool to see that kind of overwhelming aspect of being on the team and being on this one. And it's like, yeah, boy, it's, you know, it's, it's time to go. You better, you better strap in. And then, then they do, you know what I mean? So it's pretty cool. Man, that's amazing. Yeah. So, Nick, I wanted to ask you. So, as an 18 X ray, going through the 18 X ray program itself, you volunteered for special forces training. This is post September 11th, early 2000s. You're up at UMass Lowell, you know, former football player. Talk to me about your road into the Army itself and then into special forces. Yeah, man. So, I was, I was looking at the Marine Corps in high school. And the only reason why I didn't do that was uh, to play football in college. The only reason why I went to college was because I got recruited to play ball. So I went to ULOL and played up there. Sophomore year of college was 9-11, obviously an impactful day for everyone old enough to know what was going on. I struggled to stay in school because I was confident of what was coming and we were going to go to war. And I was I was angry. A lot, a lot of us were, right? I saw those planes flying into those buildings. It wasn't like they were flying into a building. It was like they were flying into me and I was pissed. And I wanted to be part of that of that revenge. So I struggled to stay in school for weeks and eventually listened to, or took the counsel of some mentors and some family and friends stayed in and I grinded out my degree. And then pretty much immediately after started looking at options to get into the military. I don't come from a, a strong military background, so I didn't have a lot of personal connections to go off of. So I started like a lot of people do just Googling stuff. And I walked into a recruiter station in downtown Boston and they had three branches in the same building, Army, Navy, and Marines. And I walked into the Navy office first, I think just because they were the first door I ran into. And I walked in and said, hey, what, what, is, what does it take to become a SEAL? 
I said, yeah, you got to enlist into the Navy and then you can request to go that route if you want to. And I said, cool, thanks. I left, had the same conversation with the Marines, got the same answer, walked out, walked into the army office and I got a different answer. And the guy's like, Hey, we've got this program, 18 x-ray program, special forces recruit contract option gives you the chance to bypass the conventional army and go straight into SF. You can become a green beret. And I had heard of Green Berets prior, you know, Rambo or John Wayne, but I really didn't know what a Green Beret or an SFODA did. So I said, thanks. And I left and I started doing some homework at the house into what an ODA does, what a Green Beret does. And I was drawn to unconventional warfare, right? It's a sexy title. And once you start to extrapolate what's inside that, even on the unclassified side, there's a lot of cool stuff in there. And it's, it was really broad. There's like a lot of things that are part of that. So it's not just this one trick pony, you're kind of this multi-tool. And that intrigued me. I thought that was, I thought that was cool and I wanted to do it. So 18 extra gave me the option to get into soft, which is where I knew I wanted to be as fast as possible, but it was also in line with my interests tactically, if you will, or mission set wise. So it ended up just being kind of a perfect fit. So after having after graduation from college, it was probably not more than a month, and uh, and I was enlisted. No, hell yeah, completed the 18 X-ray program, 18 Bravo, so a Special Forces Weapons Sergeant, and then went straight out the Third Special Forces Group. You stayed at Fort Bragg uh, for the first few years of your military career, correct? Yeah, I was at Bragg for the first I don't know seven, seven and a half, eight years before I transferred over to Fifth. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's talk about that. So. You know, in your in your injury, we talk about your injury, but your time from when you graduated the Q course as a young weapons sergeant, you know, to that second combat deployment to Afghanistan, like just the experience there. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I come in and I really didn't know what to expect. My initial thought was I'd be just this John Rambo ass kicker, which is what I wanted to do. And they kind of hammer that into your head in the Bravo course, right? The Bravos are like the stereotypical, traditional like ass kickers on the team, which is the only reason why I wanted to be a Bravo. So I'm like, cool, I'm going to I'm gonna join this team. I'm going to go to Afghanistan. I'm going to spend all day, every day, just shooting terrorists in the face. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Exactly what I want to do. Exactly. So I'm in Afghanistan. You know what I mean? Which is which is cool. And, I mean, the 18 Bravo course is pretty t- badass too, right? Like how much fun was that? All the weapons. <laughs> Yeah, fun maybe is an interesting way to put it. I learned a lot, mostly through pain and suffering, which is how most of us learn really in general. So it was good. Yeah, man, I get to my team, I get to the company and the short version is I get to the company and the entire company is deployed. I get I get assigned to Bravo Company First Battalion and they're all currently in Afghanistan. And I'm like, okay, well, can you send me now to a team? And they were on the very back end of their rotation. So Rear D Command was like, no, we're going to hold you back and we'll put you on a team once they all get back. I said, okay. Well, it turned out that there was a team in that company that deployed off cycle from the rest of the battalion, right? It was called rat teams back then, basically a PE team, preparation of the environment team. And they have, it's a niche type of skill set or niche type of mission set that they really do. It's not typically your more overt direct action stuff, right? There's a lot that goes into preparation and environment in terms of assessments, intelligence operations, things like that. And it's typically the more senior dudes around that have spent time on a standard ODA that then go to that type of team to conduct those types of operations. Well, just it was based solely on the timing of me showing up that that team was set to deploy where the rest of the company was just on their way back. That's what my company, Sergeant Major, decided. He offered it to me. He said, hey, man, I know what you're here to do. 
this team doesn't really do that, but they do a lot of cool stuff. It may not be a great fit, but they're the, they're they're pushing out the door in the next three or four months. You know, you know, at least take a look at it. So I talked to the the team sergeant, got kind of an idea of what it was, although I really didn't have a clue. No senior Bravo on the team, so I'm the only Bravo. Right, I'm drinking out of a fire hose, making a lot of mistakes. So short. The point is, is that rotation, that first rotation was a nine month pump, mostly in Kandahar, but I was exposed to so much that SF teams can do all the way from getting up into a mat B with machine guns sticking out all over the place and rolling onto a target. And also then getting into a Corolla in civilian attire and driving through downtown Kandahar to do things. It's more the Jason so, Bourne type stuff, right? Yeah, I wouldn't say that. It's not nearly that sexy, but definitely a wide range, right? So I was exposed to a ton on that first pump, which was cool. It certainly had, I had to speed up my learning process. And that's what SF teams did, right? That's like what I was exposed to. It wasn't until I switched teams, which we can get into in between my first and second pump. I went to a direct action team and then I'm back in Ward Act the next year doing solely direct action where I was like, Oh, wait a minute. Okay. Like, this is what I came here to do. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that we as an entity did all that other stuff, but now I'm actually doing the stuff that I want to do. So it just kept, things just kind of happened almost in a reverse for me. Uh, but either way, I kind of gained that, you know, that knowledge and kind of that awareness. Did you still enjoy that, that first pump, even though you weren't doing what you signed up for? Oh yeah. It was unbelievable because we did do a decent amount of the more DA type stuff. Because of the Comrel with those rat teams back when they existed, it was convoluted and complex. So we answered to like three different bosses, if you will. So we were kind of getting outside the scope of what we were there to do a couple of times. It wasn't until the RTF commander physically showed up down to where we were. And he's like, I know what you guys are doing here on the side. And you're going to stop doing that shit right now. <laughs> you are here to perform this mission. And I need you to focus on that. Stop getting on gun trucks with 238 Lurse and moving to contact because it's going to mess this whole thing up. Yeah. So yeah, it was, I learned a ton. It was an awesome deployment. Again, I had all senior dudes around me, senior E7s with a ton of special skills. So I learned a ton uh, from those dudes. So yeah, overall, just very grateful for having had that opportunity. Nah, that's cool. I think that like last podcast, we talked about that when you come to this line of work, you know, everybody has this like you, like, oh, John Rambo, this type of stuff with the the broad scope of stuff that you could do that's so incredible and awesome. It's like mind blowing. And just thinking about, you know, thinking back on the stuff that you get to do in this job is is ridiculous, right? Like, yeah. it's almost yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Especially like when, you know, guys come to the Q course and thinking about what they're going to do. Like, you have no idea. It's like unimaginable the things you're going to get to experience, right? Yeah, it's pretty cool, man. And it's also, it's an interesting a transition. And I want to fast forward too far, but, you know, the guys from like my era and, your, and Chuck, your era, right, where we came into SF, you know, early, mid-2000s, especially in third group, like we owned Afghanistan and that we did direct action. And there was just a CT force. That's all we did, rotation after rotation. And that's what Green Berets did. That's what ODAs did. And it wasn't until I came to fifth group and it wasn't so much a fifth group versus third group thing. It was just more of the general trajectory of what we were doing on the macro level where I was exposed to a lot of other aspects of what ODAs do. And it was, it's a challenging transition. I'm like, wait, wait, what, what are we doing? Where, where are the explosions? Where are the rockets? Where are the gunfights? And you see what we're doing now as a, as an entire DOD really. And it's just an entirely different dynamic that we're in now. So it's uh, it's tough, but it's, it's also, you know, a learning process to say, Hey, you know, 
that stuff was great and it was cool and I enjoyed it, those experiences. But ODAs are also, and even more so, expected to do these other things. Like, this is why we exist. Uh, so the guys coming up now are kind of getting a first look at what kind of right looks like, if you will, kind of doctrinally anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for us on the teams, our old crusty guys now, it's like, uh, what are we doing? I, I, I'm still, I don't really get it. I don't know what to do with my hands right now. <laughs> you know? Well, Nick, so I know you have a couple injuries from your time in combat, the firefights you've been overseas. Can you talk to me a little bit about the injury where you lost your leg? Talk to me through that day, what that was like, and just kind of help us and our listeners best understand what that experience was for you firsthand. Yeah, man. And I, I'm, I'm fine with getting into the gory details as much as you want. <laughs> but uh, the the general story is, is I was wounded twice on that same rotation prior to. And the reason why that's important is I was somewhat conditioned to the effects of combat. It happened to me personally, happened to a lot of friends of mine. That was a rough rotation for everyone that was in country at that time. The day I was I was shot up in my legs, began like most days, it was the joint op and we were doing a mission with our ANASF, our Afghan National Army Special Forces team that was living with us. And we were also rolling out with regular army guys, national police guys and local police guys. And you know, one of the lessons I think we can extract from this event is just how dangerous that can get when you're working with so many different entities and these different people are showing up every day where you're oftentimes seeing a face for the first time because it just happens to be where they are in their rotation. There's no real way to establish any kind of baseline with your partners. Therefore, it's impossible to detect any kind of spidey sense, right? Because you don't know what this person is, quote, normally like. Yeah. So just the importance of having that relationship and knowing who you're working with as best as possible. So that was pretty typical for us. And, you know, this is in 2012 into 13, where we're doing VSO, right? Village stability operations, where we are intentionally maintaining a very low signature, where we actually had restrictions on how robust we could build the areas where we were living, right? The concept was we don't want to make this thing too big and complex that when we transition this over back to our partners, it's unsustainable. So we need to live the way they live. We need to conduct operations the way they do. It's your job as a Green Beret to adapt to them and to the environment, not the other way around, which briefs well and makes sense. It also places the team at an enormous risk, one which we loved, by the way. We wanted this exactly what we wanted to do. So where we were living, the security was, was hodgepodge. We eventually developed an SOP where prior to a mission, the leadership would come in and be briefed on what we were doing. Everybody else would stay outside of our compound. On this particular day, a Ford Ranger also drove in with the leadership from these different cells, these different groups. And uh, I noticed it right away as an 18 Bravo, right? Base defense is one of our priorities, if not the most priority for us. I noticed it. And then I'm at a crossroads, right? It's like, okay, do I address this now and err on the side of security and potentially risk the relationship we have with our partners? Or do I wait to stay face and not ruffle the feathers and accept the security risk? And in hindsight, it's easy to look back and say, well, what were you thinking? Like, why wouldn't you act on that? Conversation I have with myself quite frequently, 
but you and I, you guys know as well as I do, like we are in the relationship business. The ODA is only successful if there is a successful relationship with a partner force to work with. We don't do anything about it. thousand percent trust. You build a rapport over time. You, you know the people you're working with. And I'm trying to yeah, man. picture this, you know, village, village civilian operations, this time in Afghanistan is like a, it's a glorified armed neighborhood watch program where you are assisting that village, the, the militarized portion of that village to defend themselves to help report of enemy combatant or Taliban movement throughout the area. You know, that trust has to be there a thousand percent. And that's what you're trying to work with over time and country, right? I think yeah, and it's, 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 it's important to capture what you just said too, because when, when we're out there with that many locals, right, the amount of risk that we are accepting to accomplish our mission, because we don't know most of these people, but we know what we're trying to accomplish. And we just have to accept the fact that, you know, we're not in this fortified fire base guarded by a bunch of Americans. Like you're literally out there in that village stability operations site and your security is like, I don't know, how many people do you think were out there that weren't Americans? Probably a couple hundred. Oh, yeah. Like, and you probably, you know, maybe 18. Like how many people total were out there with you guys with attachments? I'd say it was the 12 man team. We had, uh, yeah, we had a s- infantry squad with us, a couple other enablers. I'd say we probably. I had maybe 20, 22 dudes total. Yeah. So just, I, I think the mental aspect of how much you're like, man, like we're out here and sometimes it's not even trust, but you're like, this is the risk I'm willing to take to accomplish the mission. I don't know. I've always had a hard time wrapping my mind around it. Cause I don't think most people in the world could probably, you know, take that risk in their heads and just do it and be like, I'm so dedicated to this that I'm going to accept that. Yeah. And it's crazy, man. What becomes just normal for yeah. us after a while what you know what the human mind and body really can be conditioned to because look at this situation i'm talking about now where you're surrounded by dudes you don't know and a truck pulls in right up next to you with a truck mounted pkm on it belt fed machine gun Mm -hmm. and it wasn't this like oh my god everyone like freak out moment like you've you've seen that hundreds of times just in a matter of five months five and a half months you know so you want to battle that complacency that can set in and and in this particular instance that wasn't the case because i did notice it and i did hit that crossroad and my oodle loop cycle was firing and Mm -hmm. i intentionally decided to wait right for the sake of the relationship i intentionally made that decision where hey, i'll bring this up with my captain or my team sergeant when we get done with this thing he'll address it with their leadership it'll get smoothed out no problem i'm a decision i have to live with you know for the rest of my life because ultimately what happened was at the end of our pre-mission brief, comm checks are good. I, as the somewhat insubordinate soldier I was, just turned, my comms are good. I started heading towards my truck and then rounds started firing from behind me. Uh, an AMP, an Afghan national police officer jumped up on the back of that truck and opened fire with the PKM right into the group from about 15 feet away, mm-hmm. which was the initiation of a complex ambush. So we started taking rockets and fires from outside of our compound. Total mass cal scenario. 12 U.S. casualties, including three killed, uh, another half dozen or a dozen Afghans that are killed or wounded. The most catastrophic insider attack in the history of the GWAT still to this day. I mean, just a complete mess. And I, I have taken what was estimated four rounds through my right leg, one through my lower left, my right leg, FEMA shattered, femoral artery severed, a uh, pretty bad day. And it wasn't long before I realized kind of how bad the injury was. And at least at this point is where training really did kick in the way it's supposed to and began performing inter- medical interventions on myself, right? A couple of tourniquets, teammates got to me, another tourniquet gets put on. But you put and, your own tourniquet on. Yeah, I put my first two on 
And then teammate gets to me and I know my femoral lottery is seven and I can see the river pouring from me. Mm. And I know that I have, you know, eight to 12 minutes left before I am out of blood, unless I can actually pinch off that artery, which is really tough to do. Mm-hmm. And so I'm fighting my teammate away from me. I'm like, dude, I'm a lost cause. I know there's a lot of people wounded. Go work on someone that you can save. Don't waste your time. He, of course, ignored me. He gets IV access. He puts on another tourniquet. And uh, his work at that point was kind of done. We said our goodbyes for what we both thought was the last time. And I'm laying there, man. And I'm like, you know, I think I'm still bleeding out. Uh, what what else can I do? So I grab some gauze and I loosen up one of the tourniquets, great little power ball with the gauze. And I just ram it inside my thigh. And I'm reaching around all the times we did LTT, right? I'm reaching around trying to trying to feel for the pulse of my artery. All my blood at this point is already shunted inward to protect my organs. So I have no dexterity. I'm rubbing past shattered FEMA, right? The pain is now really kicking in. I think I feel something and I just kind of ram down on top of it and feed the rest of the gauze in, secure the tourniquet back on top of it. And as luck would have it and or because I was trained really well by my medics, I managed to nail that artery and close it off, which I know for certain because the medevac bird couldn't land for about 90 minutes after the point of injury because it was an ongoing firefight. So I'm on the ground, the rest of us, an hour and a half before I get in that first bird to be airlifted out. At that point, they really had two options. It was speed or level of care. So we had an FST that was located closer to where we were, a forward surgical team, right? Which is just a hodgepodge of different medical professionals working in a more remote area. Or they send me to Bagram, which obviously has a full-scale hospital. Well, they went with the speed route, which isn't a bad option. They get me there. It's like a 10-minute flight. They pull me off, throw me in the in the operating room, put me on a, dr- a blood transfusion, and administer somewhere between six and eight units of blood because I'm almost empty. Unfortunately for us all, it was an incompatible blood type. So everything starts to shut down. Lungs, liver, kidneys, everything's dying. And they don't know why. They assume it's just from the trauma that I've been through now for almost two hours. And they're like, this dude's done. We can't treat him. He has to go to Bagram. So they put me back on a helicopter and fly me to Bagram. Well, at the same time, they're also administering a blood transfusion to my team sergeant. And they realize while I'm on the flight, that they're actually giving him my blood type, which is O positive, which is I'm a universal donor. Mm -hmm. So he's fine. But when they see what they're giving him, they look to see what they gave me, which was his his blood type. He's like AB negative or something crazy. And they're like, oh shit, that's what happened. So they call Bagram. I'm in the air on a helicopter heading to Bagram. They call Bagram and they say, hey man, we just pumped Nick full of almost eight units of the wrong blood type. There's no way this dude survives the flight. Just be prepared to receive his body when he gets there. And in a lot of ways, they were kind of right. You know, I coded on that flight, done. Panels are coming out. Regardless, they still pull me off the bird, throw me into surgery. Mike Radnathy is there. He hacks off my leg below the knee, try to minimize how much damage my body's recovering from, uh, put me on dialysis, put me on a blood transfusion. I'm intubated. Machines at this point are the only thing that's keeping me alive. And that was really the case for another like five days until they could get me to, uh, to a point where I was stable enough to survive a fixed wing flight to Germany. Damn. And the dialysis was all because of the wrong blood type? Yeah, my kidneys shut down. Fucking wild. <laughs> yeah, man. And you know what, dude? What's kind of cool about this is it took me a while, man, to be able to talk about the blood transfusion piece um, openly because, you know, I'm very protective of our medical community. 
They, yeah. I mean, they, these people saved my life, including the people that made the mistake, right? Yeah. So I'm very protective of them and I owe my life to them. And I was concerned for a long time about about being open about that and being and it painting our medical community in a negative light. Because yeah. the question is, well, how could they have made that mistake? How is that possible that that could happen? And the reality is, you know, we operate in, in the realm of human beings mm -hmm. and the human dynamic and people make mistakes and people are not immune to adrenaline. And these people are trying to save my life and it happens, right? And what's really kind of cool is if you fast forward a bit, I ended up needing surgery years later on something totally unrelated. And I'm in there doing my pre-surgery screening with the anesthesiologist. And she asked me about the dialysis, Chuck, why were you on dialysis? And I tell her, and she's looking at me and she goes, I knew I recognized the name. I was in JBAD back in 2013. And when this happened with you, everyone in the medical community got distroed on what happened. They got the sit rep on what happened. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we changed our, our blood protocols while in country. What's what I think is cool about it and why I'm able to talk about it now is because this happened to me and by the grace of God or otherwise, I was obviously able to survive. If that hadn't happened and the same mistake was made with someone else who was unable to survive it, then that would be a catastrophe. That would be something, you know, that would be horrible. So we learn our lessons through pain and discomfort and mistakes a mistake was made with me. I was able to survive it, but because of that, we're now better, you know, as a whole, which I think is pretty important to kind of touch on. Yeah, no, that's pretty badass. Nick, can I ask real quick, uh, as you were getting medevaced, what what was going on with the rest of the team, and how did the situation on the ground <clears throat> unfold with that insider attack uh, for your ODA? Yeah, so the, the shooter on the inside of the compound, he was killed within probably eight, nine seconds, which is it's kind of amazing how much damage can be caused in such a short amount of time. Our CCT, right, our combat controller, he was controlling air. They sent every single air asset in country to us, and he annihilated the entire valley. Uh, if you were in the area at that time, you were considered a threat. So he stacked them up high and deep at that point. Um, QRF eventually showed up. That was right at the end of our rotation. We only had another couple, two, three weeks left before we were getting ripped out. And they ultimately decided to close down that site anyway, not as a result of what happened in this particular incident. So that was pretty much the end of it. The guys basically just broke everything down, relocated back to Bagram, and then got, got prepared to uh, to head back to the States. Wow. No, absolutely incredible story. Yeah, that's, fucking, that's, that's just wild about the fact they pumped you for the... I didn't know that, that part of your story about, you know, the wrong blood type. That's... That's fucking just crazy. Anyway, so let me re let me reconstitute my thoughts because you know that kind of like when you're telling those stories, you know. And I listened to a podcast today from Nick Jones. He's a Marine that I'm on a, a nonprofit. Oh yeah, um, he got shot. Yeah, 11. you hooked me up with Nick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice Thanks to you. Yeah, yeah. But I'd never like actually listened to a story before. But I found myself when I was listening to a story on the Softcast, like like it's almost like I was reliving like all the shit that we feel in combat, right? That, that, that kind of initial fear and kind of some of the adrenaline pumps. And I don't know, that's, that's kind of what I was feeling when you're talking about the blood transfusion stuff specifically. I don't know, it's just a weird emotional feeling when, when you get that, you're like, oh shit. It's almost like, you know, you're, you're there for a second and it's kind of fucked up. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but. No, it does. You know, when those first rounds started cracking off behind me, I snap my head around and I see what's going on pretty quick. And, you know, I, my training tells me, me what to do right move to cover eliminate the threat like just react in your ambush which we've rehearsed and trained on a thousand times before mm -hmm. and a pkm from 15 feet it's like getting hit with a sledgehammer 
But what I like to bring that up is we train in a certain way for a reason, right? We come up with these SOPs and these responses in a low threat environment based off of years of data collection. And like, this is the preferred way to respond to this type of event. And right, we as operators, as soldiers, as members of the military, we are trained and expected to perform in a way that goes against the human norm, right? Like we're expected to run towards the sound of gunfire, whereas 99.9% .9 of the people on the planet are gonna run the other way. Like human instincts will kick in, survival instincts will kick in and our brain will force us to act a certain way. We are expected to act and execute in a way that's that's unorthodox compared to the normal human. Mm -hmm. An AAR point on me personally that I like to hit on because it just highlights the, the importance of, of training and repetition and what conditioning does for you. And uh, more of what, of what not to do is kind of what I pull from that. Do you reflect on that regularly or do you talk about that with your team when you guys are forming your team SOPs and getting those repetitions in over and over again? Is that something you guys actively talk about? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I feel like I have an obligation based on my experiences to pass that on to the guys I get the pleasure to work alongside of. So yeah, I hit that quite frequently. The guys on my team have all heard this story and they have all heard me say what I just said to you was, Hey guys, this is not, a story of heroics this is a story that that shows the importance of training and it's there for a reason and when you assess the situation very rapidly and your, your training is telling you what to do you need to trust it because that's why we train and it's you know it's obviously a, a polarizing event that can capture people's attention which is why i like to use that as a tool to highlight the importance of training repetition and conditioning hey before we move into this i think i don't know i think you're the first person i've ever heard say that you said you know it feels like a sledgehammer when you get with a pkm and a lot of people think when i got shot in the back i was facing away from the enemy but the first round that hit me hit me in the right leg and it was that it's like a sledgehammer that knocked me off my fucking feet so then i was like this and that's why the other round hit me in the in the, in the back like everybody's like oh it's a seven six two round like no like when that fucking hits you it, it is like that. it's like a fucking sledgehammer like it's a powerful yeah. thing yeah it's not this like piercing sensation as if you got stabbed with something yeah it's like you got hit by a truck yeah. that also created a hole or multiple <laughs> right yeah. in your body but yeah it'll it'll knock you on your ass it knocked me square on my face it actually knocked me into a dude and we both ended up on the ground that's how powerful it is yeah it's not like the movies right like that's not <laughs> but i think that's just a cool like, yeah. most people just they think like when you get shot it's like the movies like no like these bigger rounds like they are fucking powerful <laughs> Luckily, I don't know anybody. I've been shot at with you disc arounds, but like that thing is like fucking terrifying, right? Like, man, if you get hit with that, like, it's fucking done. Disintegration. Yeah. No. All right, let's get back to the script here. I'll get my mind back together. All right, Nick. So let's let's talk about post injury, right? So you're recovering at the time. Our facility at Third Special Forces Group and among the other special forces groups, we, we called them Thor Three, which we came about about 2010. So it was still relatively a new program when you got wounded. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that from, you know, when you first came back to your road to where you were actually able to return to an attachment. Yeah. So I ultimately ended up spending about a year at Walter Reed, learning how to live life as an amputee and learning how to use a prosthetic, all kind of basic stuff. Get back to third group, offer the retirement, refused it administrative slugfest. I needed a job. I requested to go to the uh, SOC P committee, teach combatives and CQB with the SOC committee, which uh, 
group command allowed me to do. So that was my day-to-day job was teaching. I would also say my day-to-day job was, was recovery and rehabilitation because now I'm working with our coaches and our dietitians. So things at, at Walter Reed and those people are unbelievable human beings and what they did for me and for us. But I was working at, a, at another level now, right? Like elite coaches that know what my mission is. So things are getting dialed way up. Yeah, man. You know, they, we worked on my programming and it was, it was a, we were both learning. I was working a lot with Jason, but I was also working with Ray and, and Teddy and Tara and the PTs. And we were all kind of learning as we went. Now, third group, fortunately, and kind of for me anyway, in an odd way to say it, they had a lot of guys that were banged up. A lot of amputees were in Thor at the time, right? And they kind of paved the way for me and for us as a unit and for the coaches to kind of know what works, what doesn't work. But every injury is different and they have to adapt just as I do. So we're both learning from each other. Try this, try this, try this. Just a giant trial and error game trying to find an answer to this equation. You were working uh, but I can, three before the injury too, right? Yeah. And that's really what I love to hit on Chuck is, you know, it's, it's easy to look at, at my experience and say, man, Thor, you recovered you mm-hmm. and got you back to the team, which is true. But I was working with them for at least a year, if not longer, mm-hmm. prior to. And Mike Radnathy will tell you point blank, if you weren't as big and strong as you were, when you got shot up, you would be dead, period. That's the only thing that kept you alive, right? The fact is strong people are harder to kill, and I am proof of that. And that almost entirely comes from the Thor program with me as a two-legged guy, right? So it's not just recovery. It's about performance and sustainability within these arenas that we live within, right? So those guys got me to a place where I was big and strong to operate, but also strong enough to survive something that really should have killed me let me tell you a story about your thor 3 experience that you don't know about so before either one of us got real wounded right i would go in there and i was a big big guy too i'm deadlifting 600 pounds and uh one day jason comes to me he's like hey that's cool chuck your numbers are cool but you know this nick labor guy like (laughs) he fucking blows you away and you're probably never going to touch that and it pissed me off so i was like oh okay (laughs) fuck this jason like (laughs) (laughs) I actually, I didn't know sure that. Actually, picked me up. Um, but yeah, he told me that <laughs> beforehand. And um, I remember when I came back and I and I was I was shot and I was trying to deadlift again. Um, they're like, "Hey, I hate to tell you this, Chuck, but uh, you know, you know, Nick's probably gonna beat your record with one leg." And that and that drove me too because it was a drive I'm like this motherfucker. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. And I was always cool. I was always fuck with me, but I just thought that that was that, that was pretty cool, right? You were like the the guy even before being wounded that that those guys were keeping stats on. Like, no, this is the dude you got to beat. Yeah, well, I'm glad you were able to look at it through the lens of anger and then motivation, and not get yeah. kind of deterred deterred from that. Like, oh fuck <laughs> it, I'm just not going to train at all then. Um, yeah. But yeah, man, I mean, dude, like I came from a, a world of sports growing up. I played football in college. I you know I boxed at MMA before I came into the military working with the Thor guys you know they just took things up to another level and it's interesting we'll come we'll come to this I'm sure but when I got to the teams I was the I was a physical presence like that's what I wanted to do that's what I was good at that's what my team wanted me to do right and it was like a win-win for everybody and I'll fast forward just a touch and we can circle back but once I was wounded and I knew I was trying to get back onto the team I had to accept the reality that I'm never going to be as physically dominant as I was. 
And that was really hot for me because that's what I identified with. Like I am, I am the big, strong, ass kicking, badass motherfucker. Like that's who I am. And all the coaches that, are using your name to tell everybody else we're pieces of shit. <laughs> right. Well, I didn't, I didn't quite know all, all that much, but, <laughs> but it's true. And to accept that was hot. I was something I was able to do relatively quickly. And that's really what pushed me in the direction of the other aspects of what, what it means to be a really good green beret. It's not all how much you can deadlift, how fast you can sprint and how good you are combatives. It's there's a ton of other skills that we have or expected to be able to do. So I dove full steam ahead into some of these kind of softer side of what an operator is. And, I, you know, as painful as it was, cause I really hated all of it. I knew that I needed to make up the gap that I was going to lose physically. No matter how much time I spent in the weight room, I'm not going to be what I was with two legs. But if I can increase my capital, increase my value within these other areas, I think that that will make up the difference so that I'm still that asset once I do get back to a team. And it was cool, again, kind of go full circle where I was able to actually, you know, and eventually employ some of that stuff and kind of see it all come to fruition. Did you consider medical retirement when that was offered to you while you were in Walter Reed? No. It wasn't really, it actually wasn't Bobby offered to me until I got back to Bragg. And that was when my, my med board began. And day one of that process, you get assigned a, Pueb, a Peblo. I think it's called, it's kind of like the person that quarterbacks you through the med board. Day one, this guy's like, okay, we're going to start working on getting you transitioned out. And I'm like, stop, that's not what we're doing here. And I actually ended up firing him, which I didn't even know I could do. But I threw an absolute temper tantrum over at the soldier support center ended up in front of the, the supervisor. And I'm like, you need to get someone that's on the same page as me. Otherwise, I'm just going to do all this by myself. And he, he was actually really cool about it. He assigned me this chick. Her name was Rachel. She was amazing and sat down with her. And she's like, let's get you back to third group. And I'm like, yes, you're you're my girl. Like, let's go. Let's talk about that time frame because I, you know, I remember that pretty, pretty clearly. And I think that was a very humbling point, at least in my life, where you'd walk into our training facility and you had guys like you, um, you know, you had Justin Menchaca who just got shot to the head and he's in there every day just cracking yep. guys like Owen Lawler. He'd gotten shot, returned to combat, got shot again. He was missing an eye and a leg. You just had all these people that were just crushing it. And in my head, I'm like, man, like anybody that's just not trying to go all out right now, like they just need to come in here and see what's going on. This is ridiculous. Yeah, man. Pure, pure savagery. It was like walking into a gladiator camp when you walked into the, the Duskin training facility. Yeah. Like you walked in there, man. You better have your shit strapped on. And if you didn't, you're about to get blasted in the face because you got dudes that are missing parts of their body that are just running around. I mean, just getting after it. The, the entire environment um, almost made it impossible that. to not train at that level. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was uh, it was a unique place to to spend some time, and you know that's where I did my rehab, man. I don't I don't know if I would have been at that level I was if it wasn't for those dudes around me. Like Rob Pakel's like doing all this crazy shit. He's missing both of his legs below the knees. It's like, yeah. all right, well I still have one good leg, so like I need to be doing all that stuff. Like what's my fuck excuse? And there's none. Like it's get, get to work, and then just hit the hit the coaches, man. Yeah, they have to modify stuff for dudes that are missing parts of their bodies. But when we walked into that training facility. We were another SF guy that was there to train, to go do a job. We weren't looked at any differently. There certainly wasn't any sympathy. Let me tell you that. We were another SF dude there to go to work. Maybe it needed to be done slightly different, but the expectation was the exact same as it was for anybody else. Yeah, and if you were slacking, they just made you feel like you were just a piece of shit like anybody else. Like, come on, man, what are you doing? 
Yeah. Especially guys like Lance, that guy has a gift of making you feel like a little girl uh, and to do so professionally. It's like, oh, okay, Lance, Lance just saw that. I need to up my game. Well, even the physical therapist would, right? You're in there with like needles and all kinds of stuff, and you're like, hey, man, it's pretty uncomfortable. Like, shut up. What I'm telling you to do. No, very, very uh, candid, if you will. <laughs> hey, uh, so on that road, man, let's talk about like, so, you know, you got back to third group and you were determined – like, I'm going to go back to an ODA. And then at the time we had, you know, the operational readiness test, which we said, hey, if you're injured, because I think we had a pretty good number of injured people, you're going to take this. And if you can take it and pass it, you can go back to combat, right? So let's let's talk about that. Like, you got back to third group. You're training with these guys that obviously make us feel like, you know, even if you're wounded, they don't, they don't care. They're just going to push you to not only passing the ORT, but then getting back to a detachment. Yeah, so it was cool because their group created the OIT while I was in Walter Reed. And I'm talking to Ray while he's creating it, just and he's asking me questions and opinions and stuff. And I'm giving him just objective feedback. I get back, I'm instructing, I'm doing that eight months, and I decide I'm ready to take a shot at getting back on the team. No idea what that would what that look would look like, but I made it known to the ASC commando, which is where I was at at the time, over at the advanced skills company teaching combatives. He's like, okay. So he sends up the flagpole. It gets straight to Mark Eckerd, a group. And he's like, okay, cool. He calls me and he's like, you ready to do this? I'm like, yeah. He's like, okay. So it started off kind of basic, like do an APFT. And then I did, you know, a UBRR. And it was just one thing after another. There wasn't this smooth pipeline really for me to follow because the group command would be assuming an enormous risk, unprecedented on putting me back on a team. So they wanted to be as sure as possible that I could do the job. So they threw the kitchen sink at me. And the ORT was ultimately oh the, yeah, the ORT was the kind of the Super Bowl event. After they I more shit than you One of the things I, people, I'll tell you that right now. Like I know most of the other wounded people at the time, they didn't have to do half the shit you did. Because I think that, oh man, I'm pretty sure you were being so honorary about getting back to a team. They're like, all right, well, we're going to see. And, you know, no one's admitted this to me yet, Chuck, although I'm relatively positive. Part of that process of getting back, which took about 12 weeks, and I was doing one or two things a week, was another psyche valve. And I, I think I'm almost certain that there were legitimately people around me that thought I was out of my mind, like clinically insane, because I was, I was so obsessed with doing this. Like I lived in the gym and on the track and everything was just dialed in. They, they didn't see what my life looked like outside of when I was at work, but nothing else mattered. Like I punted everything else for this one thing, nutrition, sleep, training as all I did all day long, every day. I think at some point someone was like, Hey man, we should probably get Nick checked out like, for fun. real. Hey, we need to check Nick's mental sanity. because We do. And I don't blame him. Like I was not borderline reckless at times. I was completely reckless and they wanted me to get checked out. So they did. And the psych's like, hey, guys, like, he's no more crazy than he already was, nor is he crazier <laughs> than half the guys running around here. He's good. In my book, the ORT was kind of the Super Bowl event, the culminating event of that 12-week process. And I know, Chuck, you and I talked before this. It's kind of awesome, in my opinion. But you and CSM Eckerd took the ORT the day before I did. Yeah. You know, you were trying to get back. I think that was from when you got shot through the hand and you were yeah. trying to go back to the team. And Mark Eckert did it just kind of as a battle buddy, fully able dude who's a stud. I walk in the gym just to kind of loosen up, right? The ORTs the next morning, getting some blood flow. You guys are both laid out on the turf, sweating, <laughs> drenched in sweat, breathing heavy. And uh, I'm like, hey, how you guys doing? Yeah, good. 
Mike Eckert's like, hey, man, so you're taking this tomorrow, right? I said, yeah. He's like, okay, well, I'm going to be there. I'm like, perfect. And sure enough, the next morning, there had to be 40, 50 people that mm -hmm. were there. My whole team was there. Company, battalion, group command teams were there. And they're all following me, this massive entourage from one event to the next. I think there's 12 <laughs> events total, yeah. all done with the 50-pound vest. And when I get done with the treadmill event, which is the last event, um, I'm standing there. And I, I'm losing peripheral vision at this point. Like I can barely see straight. I am on the verge of passing out legitimately. And CSM Echo walks over and he goes, hey man, listen, I, I know you know, I just took this yesterday. If I wasn't here to witness you do what you just did on one leg, I would not believe that that just happened. And I'm there trying to look tough, right? Like I could do it again if I needed to, which I wouldn't have been able to. And I'm like, hey, CSM, I appreciate that. But like, are you going to put me back on my team or not? Like, what else <laughs> yes no. do you need me to do here? Like, where are we at, man? And he looks over the group commander and he's like, hey, Sergeant Major, this is your decision to make. Um, but I don't know how you're going to tell this dude no after what we just put him through. Yeah. And then Mark Eckert's like, hey, man, I'll, I'll draft your orders today. Uh, you'll be back on your team on Monday. And that was it, man. Hell yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Eck, that's incredible. Eckerd was smoked the day before. I think that was the first time he took it. And he was like, man, that was way harder than I anticipated. And he's an able to like, And it's stud. Like, you know, like that guy rides stud. bikes like all the time. But the, yeah. I think the RT is one of those tests, right? Like, you got to have some endurance because if you don't have the work capacity to survive that amount of work, you ain't going to, you're not going to finish that thing. What, what all is included in the ORT? I'm, I'm not completely familiar with all the events or what the combine looks like the ORT. Yeah. You know, what's, what, what's cool is that they did their best to replicate kind of combat scenarios within a gym environment the best that they could. So there's like farmers carry, there's this event called the depth drop where you jump off of a four foot platform <laughs> and basically have to stick the landing, right? Like no hands can touch the ground. It's hard pull, you sled drag. Two legs. <laughs> it is, it is. Yeah. It's hot caving ladder. You got to jump over walls. You got to have hold a rifle and move but to cover and pretend like you're shooting. On. The whole thing's with the weight vest. Yeah. All with the 50 pound vest. And when I, you know, I knew what the events were. I spent probably six weeks leading up to it, just training that while I was doing all my other assessments. And, you know, again, the coaches, we went in there and just looked at all these different events and just started breaking it down to the micro level, like the depth drop, for example, that's a hard thing to do for a person with two legs, jump off of a four foot platform with a 50 pound vest on stick the landing, do that. I think it's six times and not shatter your kneecap, right? Like, how do you do that? And that's really to replicate jumping out of the back of an LMTV. Like that's why that event exists, which, okay, that makes sense for me, right? Operating on, an, on, a, on a prosthetic knee that doesn't have the same actuation response that a regular knee does. I essentially had to land in a pistol squat, like a modified pistol squat. But what I realized is if my foot was too close to the platform, I would fall forward. If my foot was too far away from the platform, I would fall backwards. So I literally started on a six inch box and I just would jump off that and land, jump off that and land. I put a piece of tape on the ground to mock exactly where my heel needed to go. And then I gradually just started increasing the height and then increasing the weight and just bit by bit by bit, eventually working my way up to doing this off of a four foot platform with 50 pounds. But every single time I did it, I'm like, oh man, I'm just going to launch my ACL to the other side of this gym. And then I'm really going to be hurting. So just real meticulous, you know, real meticulous, real regimented trial and error, really frustrating because something like that, again, for me as a two-legged dude, I would do it without thinking. But now I have to break this thing down to the inch 
and just repetition after repetition, man. That, that's just what it was. Yeah. I think that spe- speaks to the value of the coaches that you were able to work with, you know, again, over <laughs> your guys' Thorpe facility. And then as we would kind of talk about at the beginning, just that internal drive of, hey, I'm, I'm getting back on a team. Nothing's going to stop me. Hey, but before, like, he's got to explain to you, like, the treadmill sounds easy as shit. None right? of this sounds easy. No, but the treadmill, because you're like, oh, I'm just walking, right? But, yeah, like, walk us through the treadmill piece, because that thing is oh, man. horrible. <laughs> the treadmill is a, is a nightmare. So it sounds simple. It's 2.5 miles an hour, which isn't fast. It's like a barely a fast-paced walk. And it, it, it gradually increases in an incline every two minutes. Until so you get up to the point where you're at a 45-degree angle at the top right? Which is, which is steep, right? That's a steep, you can't use your hands. You just have to walk up this thing. And this is the 12th event with a 50 pound vest on. So while it sounds like you're just going for this stroll, I've seen it just demoralize two-legged dudes easily. I've seen people, pass out their ass. people pass out on it. Yeah. Well, what made it exceptionally shitty for me was because of the lack of range of motion I have in my right hip, which is my prosthetic side. Once it hit about 15 degrees, cause it goes up to 25 degrees. Once it hits around 15 or so, I'm unable to swing my prosthetic foot all the way through and get it back in front of me because okay. it would hit the, it would hit the treadmill behind me. So I'm, I'm like, how am I going to do this? I just don't have the physical range of motion to get my foot back in front of me. How do I do this? So after hours and hours and hours of playing around with different techniques, I was like, I was like skipping, like you picture someone skipping down the street. I was doing that. What we ended up landing on was once it hit, uh, 15, I would have to turn my body laterally and laterally shuffle upward. So at this point I'm facing sideways and I'm just using my sound leg to basically pull me up at an angle because that prevented the need to get my foot back in front of me. I just kept it kind of dragging behind me and my left leg would just, I would just shuffle, 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 shuffle. That may sound horrible. I can assure you it is way worse than it even sounds. (laughs) It got to the point I got Jason, my coach, who's right in front of me now because I'm laterally shuffling up a 45 degree angle treadmill with a 50 pound vest on. It just looks insane. I'm looking right at him. And I, you have to, you have to sustain each level for two minutes. I'm like 30 seconds in and I'm looking at him and I'm, and I, I'm, he can, he's looking at me going, Nick, are you good? Cause I'm like fading, bro. Like the yeah, lights are turning off yeah. and I'm like, Jason, I don't know how much longer I can go. He's like, dude, just, just go until you, until you can't go anymore. And I'm like, all right. And I, I was convinced I was going to pass out at some point and just go ass over tea kettle off the back of this thing. Um, so getting to that two minute mark was like, a, a thing of glory like the the sun was beaming through the uh through the rafters shining down on me it was like halos are all over the place and it yeah. starts going down real slow and you're like thank god yeah when it drops down and it's just man I, I i didn't have another five seconds in me that was it complete <laughs> you're, you're total team. max you effort audience around you right they're, they're, your team's there your company's there mm-hmm. all, all these guys are watching you perform this yeah everyone's there group command team is there and uh pretty cool i wish i could have enjoyed it more but i was on the verge of going to see the wizard and passing out so i don't i didn't get a chance to like bask in the glory of having accomplished this because i was trying to look like a badass to not pass out but i was certainly glad to get it over with and then even more so once you know csm i could say yeah man you go back to your team and then it was like it was like okay cool now it's game on 
It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, and a lot of which, Chuck, you and I kind of kind of screwed over the rest of the third group because after you and I went through and some of the other guys went through it, third group's like, if we're making our most severely injured dudes pass this thing to go back to a team, why are we not doing it for everybody else? So they implemented it. Originally, it was to take a Zulu position as a team sergeant. You had yeah. to pass that. And a lot of guys did it, and they ended up, yeah. they ended up being didn't. unable to take a team. Well, I had a guy on my team who he got injured, and uh, you know, I was like, okay, you're gonna take the ORT because I was pretty pretty sure he was he was lying to me about his rehab. Well, we're talking about Colonel Pakel who has no legs. So this guy took the test one day with Colonel Pakel and another guy, and this guy's he couldn't get his fat ass over the walls, right? But the wall, like surprisingly, when you got that much weight and you're going over those five, those walls, like that sucks, right? Like that's the yeah. first thing you do, and your heart rate skyrocketing now for the entire test. We couldn't get as fast over the walls, which whatever. But then when you got on the treadmill, you got, the, you know, you know, Nick said it goes 25%, right? At 15%, this dude, healthy guy with two legs, passes out, rolls to the back of the treadmill on this, like, roll-up wall in between a dude with no legs and the group DCO on the other side. And, you know, like, for me, I mean, if I were to do that, I'd probably, like, get my ass up and leave. No, like, for 10 minutes, I just sat there sipping water. So, anyway, he ended up having to get out of the Army because that was – pretty embarrassing but the point is like there's so many guys that couldn't pass it and so many people were complaining about it but damn man like if you're a healthy dude like that was just some combat stuff that you should be able to pass that says and, and i use it on the team as a because if you have an injury like you're not getting to do that thing without it being evident and there's a lot of times in, in our community where guys will try to hide injuries right but that's one of those tests where if you go watch a guy go through it and he's not trying to hide an injury there's no way to hide that thing, man. Because it's it's gonna come up. It's like, hey, man, like you know, take care of yourself. Like, why are you struggling this? With the one that you didn't cover, which I'm sure sucked with one leg, because it sucks with two legs. Is that fucking X drill? Oh yeah, that's yeah, that was tough. That took a ton of time. I was at one point that I was actually trying it with running on my hands. True what? story. We 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 tried that. Yeah, what? like I was like a little spider. Like I was like a little spider monkey. If that would make me faster. If I did it that way, we tried everything, eventually landed on what worked, which is kind of what I call the cripple skip, which is kind of a faster way to move shorter distances as opposed to trying to like run normally. Yeah. But yeah, man, I was trying all kinds of wazoo shit to be able to move that quick and that dynamic. That's a tough, that's a tough drill. People underestimate that thing. What's the, what's the extra? Describe that to me. Yeah. I mean, picture, picture four cones on a corner or, or, or creating a box and you basically move forward and then back on an angle, and then back forward, and then back to where you started. So you basically just create an X, and you got to do it, I think, four so times. Easy. <laughs> but it's not. I mean, it's certainly it. simple, but it's not easy. Simple, but not easy. Even when you're a healthy guy, I mean, you got to really get your, your eye tracking down to where you can you can track with your eyes and then be able to position your body correctly to move in a manner that's fast enough just to pass it, let alone being injured or missing a leg and passing it, right? Yeah, because I was I, I what was critical for that event was I got to a point where I could move straight fast enough, but it was the it was the transitions of making those like uh, dynamic cuts. Yeah. My yeah. margin of error was so small. Like if I just if my foot was a half a step to the right, it wasn't going to work. So you're talking about dialing into like the nitty gritty detail on I need to hit that blade of grass on this turf, otherwise I have no shot of passing this thing. That's really what it came down to. You know what I mean? Yeah, the ORT. I'm still a fan of the ORT. I thought, like, a lot of us injured guys kind of pioneered that. People hated it. I don't know. I thought it was a good test. Yeah, so, Nick, I, I kind of wanted to ask you to shed some light. So, 
highly accomplished career as a non-commissioned officer. You know, it always seems to be a crossroads that a lot of our seasoned guys, lots of experience, ability to stay on an ODA. Some people call it going to the dark side, but I'd like you to talk to me about your thought process about becoming a special forces warrant officer and what that was like for you leaving the non-commissioned officer corps and going over the warrant officer side. Yeah, abandoning the NCO corps as, <laughs> as it's been framed to me. Exactly. Uh, more than once. Yeah, to total traitor, right? Um, <laughs> Benedict Arnold. It really began, Bobby, in, in Afghanistan 2012-13. Uh, we had a warrant officer on that team, uh, Brian Satterley, who's uh, just an amazing human being. And again, we had injury after injury, right? So our first team leader, Seth Neiman, he was wounded severely about two, three months into that trip, two months into that trip. Yeah, it would have been November. Uh, ended up losing his leg below the knee, but almost should have died in a lot of ways. Massive ID. In that particular event, Brian took over as the commander, right? He's on the same op. And it's a, it's a, it's a hysterical scenario. And we got a lot of guys wounded. We're in a firefight. And at one point, I end up where Brian's located. Rick comms are down. I need to pass my information to him. And I get to him. Brian Satterley, who can't grow a full beard to save his life. He grows this like gnarly mustache, and then it's just this ratty pirate beard. Salt and pepper hair. You know, he's pushing 40. He's wearing a blue hoodie underneath his kit. Cigarette hanging out of his mouth, right? I get to his vehicle, and he's like sitting out, like leaning on the side of the door, hanging out of the passenger seat. He's on comms, talking to Haya, calling in for a medevac, sending up a sit rep. He's got shoppy written on his pant leg as he's taking he's taking notes on his uniform pants right on injuries and sending up a, uh, sending up a nine line so he's smoking a cigarette oakley's on hair crazy ratty beard blue hoodie writing on his pants typical just warrant. as <laughs> typical warrant dude just as cool as a cucumber i mean relaxed and I, I'm like adrenaline's pumping and I'm sprinting around, breathing heavy. I'm like, chief. And he's just like, he like puts the phone down. He's on the radio. He's like, hey, what's up, man? Like, just as if I was talking to you right now. He's like, what's going on? There's RPGs flying around, machine gun fires going off. We got six dudes wounded, including me. I took an AK-47 around to the face. I'm bleeding. He's just looking at me like, hey, man, so uh, like, what's up? What do you got? I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, how are you this chill, man? It's almost like this, but he was just so seasoned and so experienced. So that was kind of my first impactful moment of like wanting to aspire to be that guy with that level of experience and uh, immaturity. And then I was fortunate to have several little warrants on teams after that, that did some great stuff. And I, I saw firsthand what a good warrant can do. And I also saw firsthand what a bad warrant can do and how that can be quite toxic and really confused the situation on the team. So that, that was, it's always, it had always been in my mind. And eventually I hit that kind of crossroads where I was a senior seven and I was up for E8 to get looked at. Kind of start looking at long-term, like what does that look like for me? Like what's that next ridge line for me? And uh, my company ops warrant at the time, this is when I had I transferred to fifth group. Just an awesome dude. He's still in now. He's the head instructor, CW4, at the basic course at Bragg. I saw what he was doing, you know, for the company. And I'm like, you know what, man? I just had a conversation with him. I'm like, hey, chief, I'm really considering this warrant thing. And he's like, yeah, you should be considering this warrant thing. Like, you are exactly the guy we look for. Yeah, he's like, you should think about it. I, I really think you'd be a good candidate. And I looked at it. And, you know, once you go warrant, it really resets your clock on your team time. Like, you're expected to do five years on the same team as a warrant officer. So that was certainly enticing. A lot of people will say, yeah, more team time is, is a shitty reason to go warrant. 
I don't think that maybe that should be the only reason, but I also want guys that want to be on teams. So I think it, it, should, it, it fits in that equation. You're in E7 at the time? I was in E7 at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So I was looking at either making team sergeant or potentially getting plucked and go to Swick. I'm like, ah, I don't really know. Five more years on a team sounds pretty cool. Kind of being that senior dude to act as that continuity mm-hmm. as the captains are rotating on and off as the team sergeants are coming and going every 24 months, kind of that sense of long-term sustainability that the guys can continuously look towards intrigued me. Right. And also intrigued me was when I really, for the first time looked at what warrant officers really even do in the army. Cause I really didn't know, you know, warrant officers in the army are considered experts, which is a strong word, but they're considered experts within on systems, right? Logistics, supply, mechanical, whatever. The Army realized that when you got these leadership roles that are constantly being swapped out, we're going to want someone to stay there to maintain the shift moving in the right direction. Why would we want to lose all that experience and knowledge? Mm -hmm. Let's create a position where we have that person there. And that was really the birth of the warrant officer. And the system in which a 180 Alpha SF warrant officer is a, quote, expert in is the ODA. That is the system. It's an organism that you're expected to know better than anybody. And in order to do that, you really need to know all of the other sections within the ODA. You can't just be a Bravo. You have to have an understanding of all the components that exist within that system. So that interested me because I knew it was going to push my capacity to increase my knowledge in comms, engineering, medical, intel, right? It was like the next forcing function for me to be what I consider to, you know, be kind of the all-encompassing Green Beret. So I was interested in the in the increased responsibility that comes with. I was interested in the in the greater team time. I was interested in having to force myself to learn things outside of the 18 Bravo world. And um, yeah, you know, it was, it was, it's been a good fit. It's been an awesome ride. It's been now almost three years and uh, I'm just going to soak up as much enjoyment as I can. I'm doing this team guy thing until, uh, you know, until that time comes to an end. Hey, is it true? So to make CW3 though, the rumor that I've heard is that you got to have a serious health issue and at least one divorce. <laughs> well, if that's the case, then I check both of those blocks. So I'm good to go. <laughs> You're good to go, right? Boom. Good to go. Well. Mm-hmm. All right, Nick. So let's talk about going past the warrant officer, right? So for some fucking reason, you decided that you wanted to go to dive school. So let's talk about that. So most able-bodied, healthy people are pretty terrified about the prospect of going to dive school. Like a like, guy like me, I know when they were trying to make my team, 3335, a dive team, I was like, yo, I like oxygen. <laughs> some of that, some of those events are are terrifying to me. And I'm not, I'm not afraid of a whole lot of stuff, but some of that stuff is pretty terrifying to me. I was pretty happy being a war on, uh, a Merops team, but so your decision to do that, like what was going through your head? And then, you know, when you were doing it, you know, we've talked about this before, like not just the physical aspects, but like mentally, what were the struggles like that you found going through that you had overcome to actually dominate and pass that course? To answer the first part, the reason why I wanted to go was because when I graduated the warrant officer course, I got assigned to a dive team. Actually, it was technically before mm-hmm. I graduated the one-off course. And a fifth group reaches out. I got a couple weeks left in the course. And they're like, hey, you're going to 5335. Immediately, I know I know it's a dive team because it's a, it ends with the number five. That freak you so out? I'm like, yeah. Yeah. My, <laughs> my reaction to that was the same as every single SF guy that graduates the Q course, puts mm-hmm. on that little green hat, feels like a total badass, like I'm ready to go do this team guy thing. And they show up and the company sergeant major is like, you're going to a dive team. And it's like, oh, holy shit, Really? <laughs> I, I just made it here. I don't, I've heard the horror stories. 
So it's the initial shock and fear that sets in with going through what is widely considered the most physically and mentally challenging school in the army, which I would attest to as well. So somebody, because you didn't choose this, somebody's like, you know what? We got Nick Labor. He's got one leg. He's going to a diet. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, it it's kind of funny him. how it happened. So <laughs> there, there were only two of us from fifth group that was in my warrant officer class. And we worked together prior to when I was I was over in the Jedbergs for a little bit. And he's a great dude. They knew that they were going to give three five a team or a warrant and another team. And they had both of our packets open on the in the group in the group command team office. And our chief operations warrant and our command sergeant major walk in and they're looking at my buddy, his name's Mike and I next to each other. And they're looking at our ERBs and the CSM used to be on five three three five. And he's go, he's looking at my packet, looking at his packet. He's like, there is no way you can send this dude to 5335. There are a bunch of savage pirates, and it just, it just isn't going to work. Mike is a great dude. He just didn't have nearly the same operational experience that I had. Mine was almost exclusively combat. Mike did a lot of like interagency taskings and stuff like that. So side by side, it was just like wildly different. So they're like, you need, if you're going to put someone on the team, it's got to be this dude, which they did. And I show up and they, you know, they knew who I was. It wasn't, they were like shocked when a one-legged guy walked in. But when I walked in and met with the company command for the first time, right, so nobody was I just, I just met. No, they had all, they all knew like, okay, we have a one-legged guy in fifth group. They never met me before. Cause I came from fourth battalion, graduated the Warren course. I get sent to third battalion. I walk in Charlie company, meet with the company command team. And within the first two minutes of the conversation, they tell me, Hey man, we are not expecting you to go to dive school period. And I said, okay, that's interesting. And they said, here's the deal. We had these options. We went with you because this team needs a really strong leader and strong leadership. And we think that they will, that you will be able to fit that role, but we don't expect you to go to dive school. Now, whether or not they were talking from a physical perspective or an, an administrative perspective remains to be seen, but it's interesting because when I met with the battalion command team, like two days later, they said the same exact thing to me. Like, Hey, Nick, welcome to third battalion. Don't worry about dive school. And at that point, I'd already made up my mind. I said, listen, you're putting me on a dive team. I have a professional obligation to go to this school, right? I will do whatever it takes to get down there and I will do whatever it takes to pass. At least I'll give it my best shot. But what makes dive teams unique is CDQC, the Combat Diver Qualification Course. The fact that everyone on it has gone through that additional filter and has that same willingness to risk their lives Not for breathe. them and the mission and their dive buddies, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's brutal, especially in a leadership position. There is almost no way you can be in a leadership role on a dive team mm -hmm. and be successful at it. If you can you see leaders on a dive school. team not go to dive school, they are a laughing stock every time. It doesn't work. No. It doesn't work. You know, it just flat out doesn't work. You know, could I have been given kind of a pass given the fact that I only had one leg? Maybe, but I wasn't even in my decision-making process. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm on a dive team. I'm going to dive school. And the company in the time were like, um, okay, I okay. guess this dude kind of is crazy. This dude we've heard about, <laughs> but, uh, you know, good luck figuring that out. Yeah. So kind of then began the both physical training to get ready and then the administrative process to get approval. So it wasn't that I was just seeking out the next difficult thing to do, which I do think is important. And I did turn that into my next personal challenge, that next ridgeline to climb, but I didn't seek it out for that purpose. It was merely about the fact that I was put on a dive team and the requirement that is associated with that is dive school. So you didn't actually say, Hey, I want to be in a dive team. I think a lot of people are like, Oh, Nick was just picking the next hardest school. So he could like show that he could dominate all this shit. But the reality is 
that was just kind of fate, really. That was it, man. Uh, yeah, I don't I mean, don't get me wrong, man. You guys know, I, I think it's important to constantly be stretching and, and looking for that next mountain to climb. Maybe that would have happened to come up at some point where I'm like, I'm going to give dive school a shot. But that's not how this played out for me. I was currently climbing the mountain I was on, which was to become a warrant officer. I had two weeks left to finish in that. And I didn't know what the next goal would really be professionally. It just got it got presented to me by the fifth group command team. And so you had to get an exception to attend dive school. And then, you know, Radnathy kind of ties back into that. T tell me about that story. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, it's a pretty intense process to get approval to go to dive school. It's it, the physical associated with that is the most intrusive, if you will. They check everything because the school is so intense and stressful. So there's two portions to it, portion one, portion two. I finished both of those, good to go. And then I need to submit a waiver because I'm on a permanent profile and I'm missing a limb. So I fill out the paperwork and even our docs at Fort Campbell were like, I don't think this is going to be approved. Like, I don't think you're allowed to go to dive school. I'm like, well, let's just send it up and see what happens. The SWIC surgeon was the approving authority on that. And I didn't know who that was at the time. And I submit the I submit the waiver. And it's like two days later, maybe I get a phone call and there's someone yelling on the other end of the phone about a one-legged guy who wants to go to dive school. And I don't know who it is. I think I'm overhearing a conversation about me with two other people. So I'm like, uh, hello, who is this? Hello. He's like, hey, Nick, it's Mike. I'm like, Mike who? He's like, Radnathy. I'm like, oh, sir. Hey, what's going on, man? How you doing? He's like, good, good, good. Yeah. And, you know, Colonel Radnath, he's a, a wild man. He's like, do you know what I'm looking at right now? I'm looking at a, at a, at a medical waiver for a one-legged guy to go to dive school. I'm like, yeah, that's me. He's like, I know it's you. That's why I'm calling you. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, what are we doing right now, dude? He's like, uh, yeah, I just wanted to, I, you know, I just want to let you know, like, oh, this is what I'm doing. I'm just, I'm looking at I'm like, that's cool. Are you going to, so who is he yelling gonna, at you in the first place when you first he was yelling at me. He was, he was yelling at me. He was just that excited. He just, as I'm answering the phone, he's already like, I'm looking at this one legged maniac wants to go to dive school. So I'm like, okay, sir. Well, are you going to approve it? He's like, yeah, I already approved it. I just sent it back. He's like, I think you're out of your mind, but if you want to go down there and give it a shot, Hey man, go for it. Well, Colonel Radnathy was the first guy, I think we talked about this, to operate on me in Afghanistan in 2013. So, you know, we kind of had a history together. And, you know, it's tough to say for sure, but if, if I would have given be given approval to go, if he wasn't the guy that had to make that decision, I think I got a, got a little bit of luck there in terms of the admin side, uh, which, you know, obviously worked out. <laughs> I love that story. That's just... so, so you got a Key West. The thought of going to dive school within itself, you go through the physical process, you know, do the maritime assessment course, the pre-scuba, the, the train up. What's that like? And then what, what, tell, tell us about what it's like in Key West going through the school, you know, with, with your situation. And the, yeah, man. the middle aspect too, oh, like yeah. what was going through your brain or your mind, like, especially you're like the one man and some of those things that drowned healthy people. Yeah, man. So once I got to the team, brand new warrant, we were in the pool the next day because there was a Mac that was going on and my team was running the Mac. So literally the first day on the team is I'm in the pool playing around with these Mac events and neither me nor my teammates had a clue on how to do this without a leg, but they are consummate professionals. And they were actually really excited about trying to figure it out. Like green berets are natural problem solvers, right? Or that's what we do for a living. So it was just a, it was a new experience for them. Like, man, let's see what we can do with this. So it began really raw and rugged and painful. 
and uh, we just kind of worked through it. Well, I went through Mac, quote unquote, at the same at that time, day one. But I wasn't technically a student. It was just a chance for me to, to like work through the events just to get some exposure to it. And then I would have later go through Mac as a student and then I would go to, to dive school. Well, this is now like February-ish, March of 2020, which boom, COVID comes on scene and all hell breaks loose and people are working from home. Well, the Mac I was scheduled to go to in April was canceled along with everything else, right? Facilities are all shut down. So I'm like, okay. Well, dive school is not happening in May, like I had planned. So we'll just see what happens with this COVID thing. And then I'll go to the next class. Well, I get a phone call from Sergeant Major Cam Ua, who's a third group guy, who's <laughs> yeah. currently still right now, yeah. the CDQC uh-huh. or Safuo Sergeant Major, who I know from my time at third group. Okay. He hits me up and says, hey, man, dive school's still on. We got a waiver to run this thing. We're running it in May. And I'm like, dude, I haven't been in a pool in like six weeks. I haven't been training. Like I was training like a maniac uh, because I knew I need my, my endurance capacity needed to be just insane for me to even have a shot at this thing. COVID comes on scene, gyms are closed, pools closed. I'm doing these kind of bullshit garage workouts, nothing nearly to the degree I was doing prior. And he's like, Hey man, dive school's on. At that point, I had like three weeks left to try to train back up again. No place to train for the pool. Well, (laughs) my teammate who's local used to lifeguard at a YMCA up in Kentucky. He calls them up and says, hey, man, can you open the facility to get my teammate up there so we can get in the pool, which they do. So I get up there. I end up having three days to train in the pool before I need to test out on the MAC events, right? Because to complete MAC, you have to complete all these different tests. Mm -hmm. I had three days. I haven't been in the water in over a month. I get up there. The pool is freezing because the entire facility had been shut down for almost two months. Mm-hmm. I'm talking, it's like 67 degrees. My team that's in the water with me, they're all in wetsuits. I'm not. <laughs> I fail every single event for the first two days. I don't pass a single one at any point. The water's freezing. Not only that, it's a 12-foot pool as opposed to the nine-foot pool I've been training at. So now I got six extra feet, right, to deal with, three extra down, three extra coming up when you're doing these underwater events, and I just get my ass kicked for two days back-to-back. I am demoralized. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to do this tomorrow. Sure enough, I show up, the dive school cadre, meet us up there. It becomes this whole kind of administrative situation with fifth group. They're like, are we even allowed to do this? Like risk assessment, like can we run a Mac technically up at some random closed YMCA in Madisonville, Kentucky during COVID? Like people are freaking out. I'm like, let's just make this happen. Like I need to give this a shot. We do, they show up. I pass every event by the grace of God and I'm given the green light to go down to dive school in May. So I show up in May. A lot of the students, almost all of them were in the same situation as me because the Mac that was scheduled to happen in April mm-hmm. was canceled, but they all kind of found the same similar way to get the, through the Mac process and be given that approval anyway. So my, the very beginning of my CDQC journey was just, you know, unusual for several reasons. And then getting down to Key West, man, and the reason why I've been talking to Cam Ua Priya was because I wanted his instructors to have an idea of the nuances that apply to me that have never applied to anybody else ever in the history of dive school, right? Like dive operations, especially in the schoolhouse, it's very prescriptive. Left foot here, right foot here, left, take a step there, move your hand there. It's super regimented and dictated because the safety concerns are so high. So they've worked through these kinks over years. Well, a lot of those sequences steps don't apply to me. 
It's like right foot goes there. Well, I don't have one. So like, what do I do when this is going on? And the entire class is all going left, right, up, down. Like some of, we have to make some modifications to these sequences without sacrificing safety and or without lowering the standards. So that just became kind of a, an interesting problem for everyone to kind of solve, which was the case when I was going through Mac and through the train up as well as once I got down there. Uh, so pretty much most, eh, a good portion of the events had to be modified slightly for me, even just simple things like getting in and out of the water. And, you know, every single event was extraordinarily challenging. I was hanging on by a thread for the entire six weeks I was down there. At any point, it could have gone the other way. You know, you brought up one man. That's kind of the the precipice of dive school. Once yeah. you get past that, then you really start to actually conduct, you know, dive operations. Well, how stressed that that point, like, in mind, like, how stressed out were you before that and then while you were doing it? A high degree of stress, which is the point of the test, is mm-hmm. to put you in that in that place. Yeah. Well, the way you do, you do one man, and you can even watch YouTube videos on this, is you get on your knees at the bottom of the pool during the deficiency phase, and you have to undo these wraps that are on your tanks. And you're doing this on a breath hold, and it's, it's pretty horrible. But with a two-legged guy, you're in a relatively relaxed position because you're on your knees, your chest is on your legs, the tanks are on your back. You don't really have to exude a lot of energy to stay in that position because the more energy you spend, the less oxygen you have. Well, for a dude without a knee, we trialed several different body positions. And what we came up with to be the most practical was for me to just be sitting on the bottom of the pool, which is what I did. Well, the problem with that is the tanks, when you're messing with this stuff, they start to shift around and I would tip over. So I had to keep my core like totally engaged the entire time I was doing this event to prevent me from falling over, which happened a whole bunch of times during our train up phase. So you get three attempts at one man. And I blacked out on the bottom of the pool on my first two, uh, which is a horrible feeling. Mm-hmm. And you get a day, you, you do the first two attempts on one day, and then you get the next last attempt the next day. Well, it's that afternoon. I failed both my attempts, blacked out twice in the bottom of the pool. I'm looking at the instructors. I'm like, you guys got any like tips or like what? <laughs> and they're like, no, nah, man, like you're doing everything right. You're just, you, you're consuming so much O2 when you're down there working. Yeah. You just have to have this monster breath hold, which I did have. Like my breath hold was crazy because I was doing so much breath hold training, doing CO2 tables for months. They're just like, hey man, we got nothing for you. You're doing all everything right. <laughs> we just have to, you just have to get through it without blacking out again. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, cool. And you know, sure enough, on that last attempt, obviously I made it through because I was able to graduate, uh, which was pretty, which was pretty cool, right? So when you do that last attempt, the entire classes that have already passed, they're, they're not on the pool deck. I was the last one to go. And I get through the, the end of the event and I come up to the water at the shallow end. And the entire class is there now in formation because they're all just waiting on me. And, you know, it's real rigid and the instructors really play this kind of robot role that they have to. But again, that's kind of that precipice point. And I came up from, uh, from the pool and they're all looking at me like, did you like, yes, like thumbs up, thumbs down. Like, what do you, like what's going on? And the, one of the cadres is like, I know everyone wants to know he just passed. And everyone just like started going crazy for a minute. The instructors were all excited. It, it was pretty cool. I was completely hypoxic still. So I couldn't really enjoy the moment because I was just trying to stay conscious and get out of the water. Um, and then, yeah, so that was kind of the, the tipping point of the top. But the challenges continued for me. Even once we got into the ocean and started doing you know, our nav dives and stuff like that, it was still really, really hot the entire time. 
kind Most of most divers to... would say that that's the fun part. You know, once you're done with one man, you go out into big blue, and you, you're you're, yeah. you're doing training wise. But that's not the case for you because you're still working through those different challenges. Yeah, for one, we were locked down to the compound. We couldn't leave because of COVID. So dive school is very much a work hard, play hard kind of community. And you got to Vol Street and you go down there and you blow off that steam after getting your ass kicked for, you know, five days during the week. Well, we didn't have that. So that just in itself made it awful. We were just on this little tiny compound all the time. And then, yeah, you know, once I got into the water, I went down there with a, with a fin that I was given by my prosthetist. But it, once I got in the water and started doing nav dives, I realized that it wasn't going to work. It was just, I was too lopsided and I was unable to stay on azimuth or really hit my target because I didn't have a land reference point to go off of. I just have a compass. And because one leg is propelling at a, at a at stronger than the other one, I would drift. And we, we noticed that. And that was the concern. Did up my first 500 meter nav dive. And I was way off course. Well, Major Blackburn, who's also a former third group guy, he was the commander at the time. And what he does is as soon as I passed one man, he reached out to this nonprofit called Combat Wounded Veterans Challenge. And they focus mostly on diving for combat wounded guys. And they use the compound at Key West to train the guys up and get them fitted for the right prosthetics. And then they go into the ocean. So they have a, they have a longstanding relationship. Major Blackburn calls this guy up. It says, hey, here's the deal. I got an amputee down there, first amputee ever. He just passed one, one man. I've got concerns about him being able to nav dive because his propulsion is so different, one leg versus the other. Here's the fin he's using. It's not going to work. Well, those guys rallied up a team, four dudes, jumped on a plane with a bunch of prosthetics equipment and showed up two days later. I get done with my nav dives way off course, and these four dudes are there, and they're like, hey, let's get in the pool and get you fitted with something different. I'm like, what the hell is happening right now? So sure enough, man, I spent four hours in the pool after everyone's done for the day. Just And they're, they're literally building me a brand new prosthetic to use in the ocean. So I end up getting a free diving fin, like a long skinny fin that I use on my prosthetic side. And I use a standard jet fin on my, on my, on my sound side. But we get back in the ocean the next day. And now it's at the point where we're doing our thousand meter dive which is the last time you have to dive before you do your 1500, which is your tested event that you have to pass. I'm on this new setup for the first time. The senior, the senior instructor down there, 10th group dude, awesome guy. He's like, hey, Nick, I'm going to dive with you today instead of your dive buddy, because I think you are going to be flying on the bottom of the ocean. And I don't think your dive buddy is going to be able to keep up with you. And I want you to get a good look at what this new setup can do, because no one knew. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, cool. Sounds good, dive soup. Sure enough, we, we splash, he's with me, we're off and cooking. I can't really tell how fast I'm going. Feels like I'm moving at a pretty good clip. I'm just honed in on this compass. And he's, he, he taps me, he gives me the ascent signal, we go up. He comes off his air, and I'm thinking there's an issue with his rig. I'm like, what's going on? He's like working through some malfunctions. He's like, stay on, stay on, your, on your bag uh, so I can't talk to him. We go down, we continue up, down, up, down, like five times. Eventually, he's like, hey, man, we have to stop. I'm like, okay. So I got like 750 meters in. I've been, I'm way off course because I've gone up and down so many times. Boat comes, picks us up, takes us in. I don't know what the hell just happened, but I assume his rig is he has an issue with his dive rig. We get into the classroom. He gets in front of the class and goes, all right, guys, check it out. I just dove with Nick, and he just kicked my ass on the bottom of the ocean. I could not keep up with him. You know, I, I had to stop. Like he literally 
tapped out of the dive because he was unable to keep up with me. Openly admitted it to the whole to the whole class. I'm like, there's no way that's the case. I talked to him off the side. I'm like, there was something wrong with your rig, right? He's like, no, dude, you were just flying on the bottom of the ocean. I'm like, uh, okay, cool. Well, tomorrow's the 1500. I still don't know how accurate I'm going to be on this thing. He's like, it's no big deal. You'll dive it. You have a chance to retest the next day. You're going to be good. I'm like, okay, we'll see what happens. Next day comes around. I dive with my actual dive buddy and I'm looking at him and I'm like, hey, bro, I need you to give this thing everything you got because I don't know how, like, what I'm going to do here. He's like, I mean, I got you. Splash. We take off. I kind of check on him a couple of times. He's doing like his arms and legs are just going. He's just stroking <laughs> as hard as he can in the bottom of the ocean. Like, normally when you dive, it's just all your fins is what's propelling you. This dude's just giving it all he has cruising along and the way that dive is graded it's based on accuracy and time right so you're you're going for this particular mock on the on the land and every i think it's 50 degrees or 50 meters off you are from that point deducts from your overall score and then your time is also integrated into your overall score i'm cooking first time i'm ever actually using this new setup to its entirety i come up to the door i pop my head up I am smack dab on the dive sign, which is exactly the point you're aiming at. And I'm the first student done. And I'm looking around and all the cadre are there and the dudes were there from the nonprofit that built this leg. And those guys are going crazy, right? They're like spraying champagne on each other. Like, look what we just did, right? This is amazing. Yeah, so they're all excited. Like the cadre are trying to play it like chill, but they're also like, that was pretty fucking cool. I'm like, all right, cool. So it looks like it worked. My dive buddy. Yeah, he's exhausted. He's like laying on the beach, like just trying to breathe. And unfortunately for him, he then had to dive next, right? Because you you switch who drives and who um, reels. So uh, he made it through. Absolute warrior. I wasn't really dragging him all that much, but just a really, you know, kind of a cool story, man, to see how I kind of came full circle with the equipment that I originally went down there with the integration of that nonprofit that came down and support built me something that really, I probably should have had from day one. And then, you know, to be able to ultimately be successful after that was pretty cool. Yeah. I, I absolutely love that story. That's, that's absolutely incredible. I mean, CDMF, <laughs> man, that's, that's so damn cool. Hey, yeah. before Bobby asked his next question, Nick, I know everybody at this point is wondering the same damn thing. Like with your accent, right? Like where at in Texas are you from? God bless Texas. <laughs> yeah, I- I'm actually from uh, a little town just south of Little Rock, Arkansas. <laughs> Born and raised, you know, a big Razorbacks fan. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> yep. I'm a good old, good old country boy. Uh, you're driving around in my pickup truck, right? Can't you tell? Can. No? <laughs> you guys are you guys are buying it? <laughs> As the warrant officer on a dive team now, so on again, a renowned dive team, 595-5335, you're dive qualified. Just give me give me a little insight to the uh, the persona, maybe the swagger. What 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 is it like being on a dive team? What's what's that uh, yeah yeah, man. So I was on a, I was on uh, three one two six in uh, when I was at third group, and we worked really closely with three one two five. I sister, we call my sister team. They're right across the hall, back in kind of the way the old companies were set up. And we trained a lot together. We were in Afghanistan, covering the same valley together, QRF for each other a bunch. And they would they were what I would consider to be kind of your typical stereotypical dive team, right? Somewhat insubordinate. Uh, they don't do well in garrison. They don't do well following orders all that well. Right. The Navy SEALs of the Green Berets. Those are the dive teams. Right. Right. Walking around, hair, no, right? no. Great hair. You need yeah. to. Great hair. Thighs out, skies out. 
Dies out, range of panties, no shirt, right? Tan, frosted tips, attitude, right? But a really high-performing high ODA. Irrelevant to maritime ops, right? They just <laughs> were really good at what they do. And a lot of that I, again, equate to having all gone through that filter within a filter within a filter, which is that cool. Fast forward a bunch of years, and now I'm on a dive team. And it's, it's almost exactly the same, right? It really is. Like a bunch of PT studs. They all look like, you know, they could be modeling for Abercrombie and Fitch, if that's still a thing. You know, abs, tan, range of panties. Uh, you know, company command team has a love-hate relationship with us because we will produce effects without question. But chances are we're going to give them some shit while doing it and, you know, maybe get a little off the rails at times. You know, I think that's pretty standard for dive teams. So the, the stereotypes exist for a reason. Those things come around for a reason. But what I do consider UDT it an shorts? honor to be on a dive team. Yeah. What about the UDT shorts? We don't really, we don't wear UDTs. No, we all have them, but we don't wear them to work. It's a range of panties mm-hmm. almost all the time. Even literally today at work, three of my guys were wearing range of panties. It's 27 degrees out. Does everybody have a 595 or 5335 tattoo? Is there a dive tattoo that everybody gets? Or is, it, is that a thing on your team? Yeah, most of the guys have our team logo tattooed on them somewhere. I haven't gotten back. It, at least not yet, but I probably will at some point. Lower back? <laughs> yeah, yeah, lower back, right? <laughs> Classic <Yeah>. tramp stamp. <laughs> All right, Nick, let's shift gears just a little bit. Let's talk about your book, Objective Secure. When did you decide to write the book? What's it about? Give us a little bit of insight into it and the process that you went through of getting your thoughts, your experiences, your reflections penned onto paper to share with others. You can share that story. Yeah, man. The origin of the book began probably around 2018 timeframe, give or take. And, you know, 2015, first deployment as an amputee. I did a bunch of them after that, still do them to, not, to this day. Social media has made the world really small. And just messages after messages, hundreds, thousands coming in over the years from some new amputees or people that are have, dealing with some other physical injury or mental issue or just having some adversity in front of them. Being asked the question repeatedly, basically, how did you do what you did? That, in one form or another, that was the question I was getting constantly so that these people could have something to go off of to get past whatever challenge they had in front of them. So after answering that question, hundreds and hundreds of times. I just decided to kind of jot it down onto a Microsoft Word document. So I had just a very easy way to copy, paste, attach, send, and then there you go. Like this is the process. So it was mostly based off of efficiency to help the people that were reaching out, having a quick, readily available answer to that question. So I did that. And it wasn't anything fancy. It wasn't anything like a book. It was maybe 10 pages of a Word doc. And, you know, I, I learned a little bit about myself because I gave it some thought and some reflection on like, how did I do that? Like, really, what was that process? You know, it was certainly fluid in nature when I was going through it and it was iterative. So a lot of that was kind of retrospective analysis, which was kind of cool just to go down that journey with myself as I was kind of jotting this stuff down. And I did, you know, maybe 10, 12 pages, boom. And I used it that way for like over a year, boom, copy, paste, send, send, send. And I was just about done with dive school, which we talked about. And now we're in May or June of 2020. And one of my best friends, we went to college together, played football together, been friends for over 20 years. His mother has been in the book industry her whole life. He hits me up. He's, hey, I know you're down at Key West going through some crazy, ridiculous school or whatever, but there's something I want to talk to you about. I'm like, okay, what's up, dude? He's like, I think you should write a book. And I'm like, dude, I am exhausted. I cannot even have this conversation with you right now. Like, 
call me in a couple of weeks after I'm home for a minute. And he does. And he's like, Hey, I really want to like go through this with you. I'm like, I don't want to write a book. What am I going to write a book about? He's like, I don't know. What would you want to write a book about? So we have this conversation again, one of my best buddies. And I'm thinking, I'm like, you know what? I kind of already have this thing that I've been using, but it's like a manual. It's what it is. It's a guide. He's like, I think you should, should like grow on that. I think you should expound upon that a little bit. And now again, we're in the summer of 2020 COVID. We're working from home, even us on teams. It's really weird. I have all this extra bandwidth at my disposal, time and energy that I normally would be spent at work. And now I'm home. I don't do well with idle time. So I'm like, all right, let me just kind of keep going with this. So I'm just jotting more and more stuff down. And then I start looking through kind of my log and my journals and I'm adding kind of more personal stuff, more emotional type stuff. It kind of just grows and grows. And I kept going with it. I got real dialed into it. It kind of became that next project for me to sink my teeth into to the point where I was waking up at three o'clock in the morning and I couldn't go back to sleep. Like I had to get up and write. And if you asked me if I enjoyed writing three years ago or I would be a writer, I would tell you you're out of your fucking mind. Like, no, get away from me. I have no interest. Turns out I actually really enjoy it. I mean, there's a therapeutic side to it, which is cool, but it's also more interesting to me is the analytical side. And we talked about Anders Ericsson and Malcolm Gladwell and how they look at case studies. I was really doing that against myself, which was kind of fun and interesting to me. So I got real obsessed. I had a deployment coming up in December of 2022, of 2020 that I kind of looked as my backstop. And it got to a point where I was doing five, 600 words a day to try to get this thing done before I left, even though I didn't really know what done looked like. And come like November timeframe, I got 70,000 words. And I'm like, holy shit, this actually is like a book. Okay. Yeah, man. So I guess it still very much is what it was originally intended to be. It's a guide. It's a manual. It is not an autobiography. It is not the Nick Lavery story. It is not a bunch of, you know, buried up to our knees and hand grenade, grenade pins, cool guy stories from Afghanistan or Iraq. It's not it. There are personal vignettes in there, personal experiences and examples, really just to give some of these principles some context for the reader. But I, I really intentionally wanted to leave that stuff to the bare bones necessity to be in there. There's no fluff. If it's in there and I'm telling you about a personal experience, is because this is what I was going through when I realized the importance of this principle that I'm hammering on right now. So it's a good 70% kind of objective manual, 30 or so percent kind of memoirs, if you will, or, or personal examples to kind of go off of. Yeah, it's really, it's, it casts a pretty wide net. I kind of look at it as, as a, a means to accomplish a goal through the inevitable adversity. And uh, yeah, it's been out for you know about two weeks which is something I'm certainly proud of. Feedback's been been nothing but positive across the board. So yeah, it's it's cool. It's it's unusual in a lot of ways to consider myself an author. It just sounds weird, feels weird to say, but I've already received the feedback from people that are saying, "Hey man, this this just changed my life." Or, mm-hmm. you know, I was going down a really dark road and I just read this and now things are good. It's impossible to put a price tag on that or quantify that kind of value. So it's really special and something that I'm grateful for to be a small pot in kind of these people's these people's journeys. Well, Nick, I, th- I think that's incredibly impactful. Again, huge congratulations mm-hmm. because authoring a book is no small feat and that's a, that's a huge accomplishment. But more importantly, I think 
that feedback you get from people in the regiment, those notes that say, hey, I associated, I connected, I saw myself in this situation you were talking about, in that same story or that same advice you were giving, I think that speaks volumes about the way you're able to touch people and uh, people are connecting with you. And again, that's that's keeping the Special Forces Regiment uh, alive, beating and burning and uh, hugely impactful. So really appreciate you sharing that. And also, again, congratulations. Very proud of you for doing that and uh, representing the regiment in that way. Yeah. Look, I've been, Thanks, putting man. Of, I've been putting a lot of reviews on there. I don't know if you've seen them, but I'm like, you know, Nick, he went to dive school, so he's kind of like a Navy SEAL. Does he have the hair for it? Well, Nick actually posted it in a form. He's like, I know I don't. He's Navy okay. SEAL okay. stuff. It's like, I was like, what? Because you said something about Navy SEAL stuff. And I was well, like, well, it's it's true, man. I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you. You know, I, I did struggle, and I still do, talking about the book or not. If you just look at it through the lens of the book. I'm going to write a book. You know, I've read a lot of military stories, cool guy stories, stuff like that. They all, I mean, some amazing, unbelievable Medal of Honor, Distinguished Service Cross, Silver Star type shit. I mean, amazing, amazing stuff. I've read plenty of them and it's it's cool, right? Interesting stories, amazing stuff. I knew I didn't want to do that, but that tends to be what people assume it's going to be, right? Like, oh, here comes this like badass kind of like Navy SEAL-like book that we all read, you know, SF guys and SEALs, we've got that kind of brotherly admiration, hatred for each other where we talk shit. And then, you know, we usually work together pretty well, Brother, little brother. but I did, <laughs> I did struggle with it. You know, I did struggle with it. You know, I grew up uh, believing in the quiet professional mentality before, long before I was ever an, an SF guy instilled in me by my father, right? Don't talk about it, be about it kind of stuff. And I become an SF dude. And that's kind of what we go by. Like I struggle with that. Like, am I, am I, am I abandoning, who we are as quiet professionals. And what I've come to realize, at least my perspective, is there's a difference between being a quiet professional and a silent professional. And we as a regiment have been slow to move past that and be proud of our accomplishments and market ourselves accordingly. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not that we're seeking the limelight or we need accolations. It's been a, it's a disservice to us to not highlight our experiences, our lessons learned, our triumphs, our failures, right? Like that's important to do. And you could break this down all the way as it pertains to recruitment efforts and the longevity of SF. Like you need guys and now gals that want to come over and do this. And that becomes increasingly more difficult when no one knows what it is we do or what it is that we've done, right? So that was a struggle for me to get past that. I know some really will disagree with my perception of that and my opinion of that, which is also okay. I know, you know, what my, what my integrity is. I owe a lot to this regiment. It's one that I love. And I see this as just a way to give back, kind of pay that forward in terms of someone who's struggling to overcome something or just sink the teeth into that next 17 year old stud who otherwise never would have known what a green beret does or what it is. Now that guy wants to go to SFAS. I see that as something to be pretty important. Something I'm, you know, pretty proud of man oh yeah so i did download your book on my kindle man but it's not yet on audiobooks on apple <laughs> i've been pissed off about it. like what the fuck because i can't you know like yeah. it's like my go-to for going to work it's coming it's coming yeah okay. I'm, I'm looking to record it probably late summer oh so you then... haven't recorded it yet haven't recorded it yet so i you know the record it Yo, I'm gonna do it. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna narrate a portion of it, and then again, my buddy who got me on board with this, he's gonna narrate kind of the generic stuff, 
Does he have I'm going to narrate. Does he have, does, he have the, does he have the accent? No, he doesn't. My my accent will stand out. Like, you're going to know when it's me talking. I'll narrate like the personal stuff, and then I'll kind of do the Goggins piece where he kind of expounds on what it is that's in the book a little bit. So it's coming. I've been asked about the audio book uh, probably a hundred times. It's, it's, it's I, I want to ask you about the cover photo. I saw that cover photo uh, a few years back. I think when I was still in an attachment or coming off of one, and there are so many words or feelings just viewing that photo that is now emblazoned on the cover of your book objective secure talk to me about that real quick yeah so the photo was taken almost at the very end of our 2015 afghanistan deployment which is my first one as an amputee and it's kind of an interesting story i was adamant about not having my photo on the cover of the book. My cousin, my wife's cousin, technically is a graphic designer. He created the cover that you guys have, that you guys see now. He created another one that it just had text on the front. It didn't have me on the cover. I was adamant about that because I was concerned about people seeing the photograph of me and then assuming it was an autobiography. It's assuming it was exactly what it's not. I'm like, no, if you look at most books within the personal development space, it's not a photograph of the author because chances are it's some random person, right? It's There's a very specific way that those covers look. And I wanted mine to have that kind of feel. Like you're not getting an autobiography. And I was adamant about that. He designed a cover and I loved it. We were about a month out from actually going live on this thing. And he's like, dude, I can't let this happen. We are, we are missing a huge opportunity here. And it's not about glamorizing yourself. It's really what that photograph represents. Like that picture is what's inside this book. If there was ever a time when a picture is worth a thousand words, it's this. And I'm like, you know what? You kind of have a good point. He's like, yeah, I do have a good point. So we need to switch this and let me, let me create something for you. And like four hours later, he whipped up that, which is a work of art. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. This is it. So it kind of came full circle, man, where that photo was taken at the tail end of kind of a, a ridgeline or the uh, summit of a mountain. And I just felt like it really did embody what is inside, which is, you know, goal achievement through overcoming adversity. Like that's what it is. And that's what that photo really represents. Oh, yeah. All right. So, Nick, here's the last question for you. It's not quite as deep as the first one about, you know, what some profound you're thinking about around this inspiration, but. Send it. You know. So you're a warrant officer now, you know, with your family, which you talked about earlier, it's kind of, it's kind of wild for the next five years for you. Like what's your vision for that? And then like, where do you see yourself post special forces military career? Yeah. You know, man, I'm, I'm so blessed to be in a current profession that is comprised of both passion and purpose for me. And if those didn't exist, I wouldn't have gotten back to doing what I do, right? Like a genuine love for what we do and a sense of purpose behind what we do. I had those from the time I was, before I was wounded. And that was really at the core as to the how you were able to do it, right? I'm also fortunate because I have identified what my next passion purpose really is post-military service. And it's really a lot of, you know, what I do now a life of service, just kind of through a different mechanism, through a different conduit, where I see that being in the realm of writing, something that turns out I actually really enjoy, you know, workshops, speaking, consulting, taking the lessons I've learned through errors and pain, and being that teacher, which is really what Green Berets do more than anything else, being a teacher and a complex problem solver for the greater community. Uh, I know what that is going to be. And I spend, you know, nights and weekends now 
working on that to the point where it's it's gotten it's gotten to a point where I'm being requested to do way more things than I'm actually able to do, which is a good problem to have. Mm-hmm. I've made a commitment to stay in to the 20 year mark is something that I want to see through both personally and professionally. So I look at the next five years as just a chance to kind of build that foundation make all of the mistakes, or at least a lot of them, uh, really learn what it's like to run a business, a brand, and providing that service within those different arenas. And so it's a gift, right? The next five years for me is a gift to do that. So that once I get that DD214 in my hands, I'm kind of moving directly into a full-time position in a well-oiled machine. Uh, so it's, it's it's exciting because I have day-to-day, I love what I do. Like I, I still get to go to a team room, 595 team room, and work alongside some studs every day, which I love. I also get to do this other stuff that I also love, right? When and if I can, I can put the time and energy into it. So I think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be an interesting ride, man. You know, and again, it's still a transition, like even just being on a, on a podcast and now I've done dozens of them, but still it, it's a difficult transition that I'm still kind of going through now and learning a lot about myself in the process. So it'll be an interesting ride, man, but I'm already kind of, I'm looking forward to what the next chapter looks like, but I'm really trying to soak in as many experiences as I can get doing what I do now, because once that, you know, once that life is over, bro, like nothing's going to, nothing's going to replace it. So I want to enjoy the time I still have left. You got to enjoy the journey, right? Yeah, it's key. It's key. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. That's fucking cool. That's so damn cool. Nick, anything else you'd like to include before we kind of close this out? Any any advice, any final thoughts, anything else you'd just like to include for the audience, SWIC, the people who are going to listen to this outside of just special operations? Anything else you want to include, man? You know what? Let's go full circle because we started this thing off talking about talent. And actually, it's the, it's the conclusion of my book, which I talk about Tom Brady, right, who just recently announced he's retiring, quarterback for the New England Patriots slash Tampa Bay Bucks. We don't really want to count that pot for those of you that don't know what Brady is get out of your minds right greatest quarterback of all time period but I, I I end the book talking about him and the fact that all of his accomplishments right and you looked at him as a college player looked at him in the at the combine and he was nothing even remotely close to being great this dude drafted 199th in the NFL draft the sixth round right or seventh round excuse me by all intents and purposes shouldn't even have made the final roster and did and was just grinding and stayed focused and made the sacrifices. And when his opportunity was presented to him, he capitalized on it. And that was the start of what we've seen now, you know, 20 some odd years later, greatest player in history. I don't compare myself to him, but I say, you know, I can relate to Tom because I was put in a position where no one really believed I could do what I set my sights on, but it didn't matter. Like I knew what I was going to go do. There was no plan B. I was confident if I just stayed focused and made the sacrifices and worked harder than anybody that I could do what I set my sights on. I just needed the opportunity to present itself. And eventually it did. And I capitalized on it. And I like to use that because it's not about whether you're born this prodigy or you're born with all these crazy talents. You can accomplish whatever it is, as long as you have the right strategy in place, the work ethic, et cetera, discipline, right? It's, it's attainable. And I'm not cut from a different cloth. I'm not from another planet. I'm, I wasn't born with all these skills and all these resources, right? I'm just like a regular dude that was put in these different circumstances. And the result of it was what it was. And through pain and suffering and sweat and effort and focus and structure, I was able to do uh, you know, what I set my sights on. So I, I like to mention that. And I closed the book out because 
I'm trying to reach the, the greater audience. And a lot of times people hear what I have to say or read it. We as in, as in Green Berets and me personally get put on this pedestal of, oh, well, of course you could do that because you're a Green Beret, but I'm not. Like I'm a mailman or I'm a whatever. It's like, no, no, no. This stuff applies to everybody, right? Like this is an option for all of us to choose. It doesn't matter the circumstances you were born with or the circumstances you have right now. You just simply have to decide and commit to it and you can reach that summit no matter what it is. Fantastic final words. Nick, you mentioned the Tiger Woods effect at the beginning of this as a golf enthusiast. You know, let's not forget that Tiger Woods was born to Earl Woods, who did serve in special forces in Vietnam. So, again, he had a leg up uh, in his career as a role model who was completely driving in some good values, some some instinct into him. And, again, had just a little bit of that, whatever that specialness is, uh, built into the DNA, because that was his dad that uh, that kind of uh, set him along on the path. That's a good point. It's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. But Nick, Bobby was also on the cover of Golf Magazine pretty recently. So that's why he's like big in Tiger Woods. So you, you hit a hit a good point on that. Look at that. A lowly insert. No, it was the cover. It was not the cover. It wasn't the cover? No, I think it was the cover. But Nick, as we close this out, I want to say it's been absolutely humbling and an honor just to sit down and spend some time with you. Again, a, a true family man, a warrior, and then a man who just embodies a lot of the undeniable values and instincts and the things, the intangibles that it takes that go into our special operations forces, our Green Berets. Thanks for spending the time with us tonight and just laying that out, telling your story and talking us through some of your experiences. Very humbling, very insightful. Again, man, just really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah, yeah, man. That was I awesome, appreciate man. it. Cool, Nick. Well, hey, man, thanks for your time, brother. Like, um, oh, great to chat, boys. Thanks for your time. Yeah, man. And uh, we'll talk to you soon whenever you get back out here, Brad. Absolutely. Looking thanks, forward Nick. to it. Appreciate it, boys. Yeah. And have a good night. Bye. Bye.